the cinematic language of 16-bit RPGs, the lost art of character development, Nobuo Uematsu's favorite works, and why Jaws doesn't need a backstory. I'm the well-read mage, and this is MageCast. This one's a doozy, folks. It's time at last to unpack some thoughts on Final Fantasy VI, originally released in North America as Final Fantasy III, and this is the only reference to that naming convention. From the heights of Paradiso to the depths of madness, I'm joined for this discussion by Philip Hartshorn, actor, filmmaker, martial artist, streamer, cosplayer, and man with hair so incredible you didn't know you were jealous until now. Together, we dig deep into the world of Ruin and ask what the sixth Final Fantasy is about. Elementally, human questions are posed, but in a universe as ancient and storied as this one, the answers may not come easy. Put on your thinking caps and let's find our seats as the curtain lifts on Final Fantasy VI and its actors take the stage for a performance that's both profound and ludicrous. Half Wagnerian, half tentacle anime. A tragedy and a farce. Magecast is the podcast for the lonely for those who miss the simple pleasure of a shared dialogue. MageCast is the podcast for conversationalists in a world where we've already stopped listening to each other. As ever, you can help support MageCast by visiting patreon.com forward slash the pixels, where episodes are offered in early access before going live for the public. If you enjoy the show, you can also leave a review on places such as Apple and Podchaser or a rating on Spotify. You can also learn more at thepixels.com, that's the-pixels.com, or find me on Twitter and Twitch at the Well Read Mage. Hey, my friends, welcome back to another episode of Magecast. But this just is, isn't another episode of Magecast. This is like the episode of Magecast. Next to doing Chrono Trigger, this is like one of the biggest topics that I could discuss. And I'm so glad to have here with me somebody who took just a break for a, a few hours from being awesome. To and apparently like <laughs> super epic, taking a break from hiking Mount Everest to be on this show with me, and that is Philip Hartshorn. How are you, Phil? I'm fantastic. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I appreciate it, man. And I know it was short notice, so thank you. Thanks very much for being on the show. Uh, I think I anticipate that we'll have a really fascinating profound i don't want to oversell it eloquent conversation here. <laughs> yeah i think so too uh, i've seen a lot of your i i follow you on twitter and i always love the kind of the conversations you get going it's it's stuff that a lot of people don't usually touch on or talk about so i'm excited to chat with you yeah the 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 controversial but brave questions right <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> uh so phil tell us a, a bit more about yourself uh like we were chatting about before you know i always so people will ask me, what's your criteria for having a guest on your show? And I don't really have criteria. Just are you an interesting person? Do you have a platform? Do you have content that we can discuss? And so uh, I've seen your content before and I decided to revisit it again this week. And you've lived an adventurous life, my friend. <laughs> I, I've, I mean, I've had some fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like you were Tifa. You like you climbed. <laughs> you were climbed Everest. <laughs> Yeah, I am. I am the real uh, Italian Tifa, as we <laughs> joked. Uh, I'm the yes. I'm male Tifa in real life. Yeah, no, I, I've yes. done a lot of fun stuff. If you guys uh, may have, the most likely way you may you guys may have heard of me is my I did a documentary film, uh, living as a warrior monk at the Shaolin Temple in China, and that was unbelievable experience. And uh, I I had such a amazing learning experience there. And that's that's available on YouTube. Uh, I've also climbed to Everest Base Camp, done the Everest trekking route, which was another crazy 
life-changing adventure. And uh, I also love Final Fantasy. So I have a gaming channel where I I was just like, man, I want to talk about this all day. What do I do with this? Like I make content, but I'm not, I'm not talking about these games. So I was like, why don't I try uh, being an art educator and I'll use my filmmaking knowledge to teach film science through Final Fantasy cutscenes because they're so amazingly done uh, with the cinematic language and understanding of those concepts. And then we'll we'll teach it through other games too. So that's that's kind of been how I I circle back around. And then my awesome girlfriend Aaliyah, she and I have done a lot of cosplay, like you mentioned. Like the she did male Barrett, and I was yes, uh, or female Barrett, and I was male defense. That was really really fun. Yes, so. uh, that was a delight. Uh, some of my favorite cosplay I've ever seen. So so great. Thank you. Appreciate it. Uh, so you have a background then of some sort in in filmmaking and cinema. Uh, are you self-taught or it, did you spend some time getting schooling on that? I do. Yeah, I have, I have a degree uh, in creative arts and filmmaking and writing. And I after that, you know, went on to do internships and, you know, everything else you'd expect. To, and then after that, I started my own film business. I got to this point in my life where I was working an office job, like a really great office job at like Cornell Medical College. And I was just like, yeah, this isn't me. And I just instantly left the job, started my film business, you know, made money other ways how I could. But I was like, I really just want to, you know, tell stories and and kind of uh, be myself and not be chained by uh, because by, I'm just a daydreamer. I just think about, you know, like these games all day and cool, you know, stories and everything. <laughs> so I just had to find a way to do that. So I started my film business word of mouth marketing and started doing projects for other people and getting hired by clients all over the world. Uh, and then after that, I was like, okay, what's a way that I can showcase some of my own film work? Oh, let's use social media. And uh, it's just been great. It's been a quite a awesome. I, and an entrepreneur truly. Uh, and I've heard that that's, I mean, that's, that's a thing that I think a lot of folk in our demographic, I mean, I don't know how old you are. You don't know how old I am, but I'm sure we have a lot of, friends uh and local communities and internet communities who have left kind of the nine to fives and moved towards pursuing those dream jobs and yep. that's really awesome and inspiring to see that you're doing that i appreciate it it's it's a very scary thing to do i, I have nothing but respect oh, yeah. for people who do it um if you're thinking about it just remember that like i'm insane and i just like revel in chaos and stuff don't be <laughs> like me like have a plan like that is a fallback like i was just like yeah i'm gonna do this don't do that. <laughs> like, just, just don't be as insane as me is my only advice. Man, I did the same thing. I quit a job. There you go. Now mm-hmm. I, write, I write full time. But yeah, having a backup plan, I think the thing is like nobody's one plan for their life works for everybody else. Right. Yeah, like, exactly. It, yep. So it's like we could look at Phil and say, man, this guy's got excellent hair, but you can't just <laughs> you can't just be Phil. Uh, and dude, do you ever get like mistaken for Jesus or something like my goodness, that has happened nonstop, (laughs) which, which is, I don't know how I feel about that, but it's, it's only (laughs) since I started growing the beard. Uh, my girlfriend was like, please grow a beard. I was like, eh, maybe I'll do it for you. So I grew the beard and, uh, yeah, nonstop now. (laughs) Amazing. Amazing. Thank you. Uh, well, I, let's get into the, the episode proper. I mean, we've mentioned there's a lot of cool content, folks, that you need to check out from Phil here. Uh, there's going to be links in the description, so please do check that out afterwards. Thank you. Uh, this is MageCast, episode 72, entitled The Divine Absurdity. Final Fantasy VI is the game that we're talking about, and it was developed and published by Square in 1994 
for the Super Nintendo. Now, warning, spoilers ahead. Every episode of this show is a spoilers episode. I don't, I mean, you might not care about spoilers for Yoshi's Island last episode, but you <laughs> might care about spoilers for Final Fantasy VI. An opening question, though, for you, Phil, before we get into the, the nitty gritty. What do you think makes this game so well well respected uh the term goat gets thrown around right Mm -hmm. greatest of all time and this is a game that's frequently cited by people as the best final fantasy what do you think it is about it that makes it that i would say multiple reasons the first one being that it is just in my opinion the apex of of that art form of pixel art Uh, i always i said to you in a a message before it's like chrono trigger Mm -hmm. and ff6 are really like the apex of pixel art no, they haven't advanced it since. Like, yeah, you can have like you yeah. know 3D backgrounds, but that's that's not really pixel art. You know, uh, you can bring in other elements, but it really is just. It was the peak of that art form, and it, it other other people imitate it now. Like they imitate that peak. Uh, also, I think it's the 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 jumping off point, the springboard of you know what Final Fantasy has become today. Like this worldwide uh, leader of storytelling in in the gaming space, and really like genre shaping. Uh, medium mm. shaping in in the gaming space storytelling i would say absolutely uh with final fantasy 7 coming after the reason they were able to push that far is because ff6 in that format of the freaking super nintendo was pushing it just absolutely to the uh to something that people had never seen and we'll talk about that later with the writing and characters but it's just something that really hadn't been uh dove into that deeply before i think so there's a lot of respect there not to mention the music uh, there's just such a, a a deep love of the craft and like every single person that worked on this game. And you can you can smell that a mile away. You really can. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, then obviously, I appreciate the comparisons to Chrono Trigger. Those who know me know yep. that I definitely <laughs> appreciate that. Uh, I think you're right there that it does seem like it's the apex of a, a kind of golden age in its own context. Uh, certainly looking forward to the Final Fantasy VI Pixel Remaster. At the time of this recording, the Pixel Remaster is only a few days away. That's exciting. Yes. Uh, There's a question here from the Molluska on Twitter. What are your most anticipated parts of the Pixel Remaster to see fans enjoy? Oh, I would say for me, it's absolutely the music. Uh, Oh, yeah. And I love the music of Final Fantasy. It's really probably my my biggest love if I had to choose one from all the games. And my first game is Final Fantasy One when I was a kid, my first video game ever. So to really see, wow, yeah. So to <laughs> see that brought out uh, into real performances, real musicians playing like every song in the Pixel Remaster, not just like you know the main theme or something like we've heard at Distant Worlds, was just absolutely mind boggling. And like I said, it's kind of been it'll be the same for me in FF Six because. I always talk about this It's like the bridging of of my imagination when I was a kid, because, you know, it's it's the NES sound font or the Super right. Nintendo sound <laughs> font. Like, is that a trumpet? Is that a string? I, I have no idea. What is it? Piano? Like, what is that instrument? It's just like beep, boop, beep. So to hear that, it's like, oh, my God, my imagination is like filled in like the blanks. And then also it's like, what was Nobuo Uematsu imagining? I don't know either. And like now we know oh, he was imagining a, a trumpet right there or a, or a violin like. It's such a cool experience and it kind of feels like his vision was complete because like I always say, it is the apex of that art form, but they didn't choose that art form. That was the limitation of the absolute peak of technology at the time, right? So mm-hmm. it's not like today they said, oh, let's do like a retro pixel art game and we'll right. do chip, we'll use chip tunes. No, Nobuo like did the best he could. He tried to get real sound out of it. So 
that's why for me, I think it's just such a beautiful way to complete the vision. Uh, and FF6 is just the most legendary soundtrack of that entire era. And I think where, where Nobuo really started to like unpack his, his full potential for the soundtrack in general. <laughs> like, I think it's where he entered his, his personal, you know, golden age, his, his Klaus, whatever you want to say. Yeah. And I appreciate the authenticity of the sound of the pixel remasters. Uh, there is arguments to be made about, you know, what visuals were chosen here in the font and all that. Mm-hmm. And you've seen the community discuss that certainly. Right. But the music certainly seems to be widely praised. I haven't seen anybody criticizing the music in the pixel remasters. And when you hear that track, in the pixel remaster that you recognize from your youth, you know, it's that track. They didn't change up the melody. They didn't change the progression. They didn't even raise the, the pitch of the song. It is the same song. It's just more fully realized. And so with the final fantasy six pixel remaster, man, I can't wait to hear dancing mad. Oh, it's going to be, it's going to be insane. And that's FF six is a special game. Like I love FF five, FF four, like so much the soundtracks, even FF two, but FF6, like every single song, you can just have to sit there and listen to the entire thing and just take it in. Like it is just every song is like a prolific, incredible piece. You know, there's not one I can think of where it's like, eh, we'll skip to the next one. So yeah, yeah, we have the big ones like Dancing Mad and Terrace theme that is absolutely iconic. But uh, every song is great. I have like yes. Cyan's theme. Like there's so many that I could just talk about. Oh, there, that's so good and we'll we'll circle back to music for sure but pixel remaster definitely going to be playing and enjoying that have you played the uh the one through five pixel remasters already i have yeah excellent and uh, i'm i'm finishing the final final fantasy game that i've not beaten is five by design i've been saving it for 15 years and wow uh, i was like (laughs) i'll play it one day uh you know and it's funny because 15 years ago i was around that time i'm losing track now i said wow this is the last like retro ff i've not like this is there's no more you know i've reached the end of of this of this uh catalog so i said you know what i'll do when versus 13 comes out i will play ff5 <laughs> and we all know how that worked out so i, <laughs> I still didn't play and i was like okay pixel remaster i'm playing it let's do this so yeah i'm i'm near the end i'm like 90 percent through the game i'm gonna do like a final epic stream or something and finish it right before the the new one drops awesome I'm playing through FF5 for the first time too. Well, touched on it previously with the PS1 version, but didn't really stick. And now I'm hoping to finish it out and it'll be the last of the single digits that I need to finish. Amazing. Uh, and definitely looking forward to FF6 next week. Uh, statement here from Sanity Crypto. Can we all just agree that if you don't suplex the train that you might as well just start over on a fresh save? Suplexing yes. the train... Perhaps the most memorable, <laughs> one of the most memorable bits in this very memorable game. Uh, did you catch, on a side note here, did you catch, I believe it was the Final Fantasy Twitter account sharing a clip of the suplex of the train? I did. But the train like didn't flip up. I didn't even notice it. And people were like, the train's not upside down when it comes back down. I did. And they and went and they fixed, they fixed it. it. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Good on them. Says a I, lot, man. It's 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 an easy fix, right? It's literally like flip, you know. Right. Flip <laughs> but like, it's good. It's good. They're not just like, you know. A lot of people would double down and be like, "No, this is our decision." When in fact, they just didn't notice it, right? Like they didn't have time to polish that, so they're gonna go back and fix it. It says a lot about the team, and uh, I think it's great. And I'll have you know, last time I played the game, I suplexed it twice in one battle. Oh, 
There you go. <laughs> <laughs> like a pro. Yeah. Uh, first impressions. So, you know, we've discussed kind of first time playing Final Fantasy V. Mm-hmm. Uh, first time playing Final Fantasy VI, though, there's a statement here, a bit of a memory that was shared. And I love that there are so many folks that shared their memories with this game. I put it out every week, you know, share your comments, share your questions. And some people just share, like, really just for lack of a better term, precious memories that they have experiencing these games back in the day for the first time. And this is from Sabine Figaro, who said, one of my favorite memories of the game is trying to play it at launch. My elder brother imported the game from the U.S. and wouldn't let me play it. I had to sneak into his room when he was at work, play it, then delete my save (laughs) before he stopped. (laughs) (laughs) That's next level, right? That's commitment, yeah. Yeah, that is dedication. So do you remember when you first played this? Was it in 94? No, it was a bit later for me because I didn't have a Super Nintendo. And I have a funny story because I played FF1, first game ever. I think along with like Mario 1, you know, Mario Brothers. And then uh, I didn't have like all these systems and everything. I didn't have like the money to buy all the systems. So uh, eventually, like many, many years later, I think it was like 2000, like around 2000, the year 2000, we achieved a... uh, a PlayStation two. And we were like, Oh wow. Final fantasy, our favorite game. FF 10 just came out. So we, <laughs> me and my brother got FF 10 and we're like, Whoa, FF has come so long. This is amazing. So then I was like, I want to go back and play all these games. So then I played like one 10 and then everything in between. So wow. it was awesome. So yeah, we got to FF six and like, I kind of had the same experience as a lot of people, but the cool thing is I'd played 10. So I wasn't like, you know, it wasn't like I saw that Apex first. I saw PS2 Apex first, you know, with FF10. So then I came back to it. And what hit me first is just the charm, I would say, mm-hmm. of of that art form, of that sound font, and just kind of everything that uh, is built around it. It's, it's such a solid aesthetic. The entire thing is so consistent. And that's the difference between even FF4 and 5 uh, compared to 6. Like 6, if you notice... Like the grass, even in FF5, has like this really bright, super saturated green. In FF6, mm-hmm. it's like everything has a color palette. Like everything is just kind of dilapidated, beautiful browns and blues and everything kind of is the theme of the whole game. And they they keep that aesthetic. It's just something that games didn't do at that point, right? Like, why would they? So it was just yeah. very impressive and, and stuff that you do not see uh, with pixel art, typically. Kind of like a... Uh, like a trying to think of like what's what's another way to phrase that like a deliberate color palette and thinking about ff6 it seems like a deliberately uh gloomy might not be the best term but you might imagine what i mean a a darker more muted color palette. yeah i think muted is the word yeah Mm -hmm. there it is yeah like when you said bright green for the grass and i was like i know exactly what he's talking about yeah yeah the secret of mana the vibrant green that that leaps out whereas Mm -hmm. when you play ff6 it certainly is it seems more amber more somber yeah. uh than a lot well, and of it's just such a cool choice because and that's the difference between like making an artistic choice to to voice something as opposed to just like green it's grass <laughs> yeah, it's, <laughs> it's grass like, it's green and again i'm not saying that bright grass is bad that, that could be a, right. a, a thematic element for that uh, you know a visual palette for that game but the cool thing is like you you think about ff6 where does it start in this like kind of steampunky like, you know, war-ridden land and, like, a mine, like, this freezing cold mine with, like, a coal town. Like, it's perfect for this muted, very dilapidated, cold colors to start. And uh, you feel that atmosphere. You feel that mood 
it just works so well. If it was like bright and colorful and narsh, it would not give the same mood at all. Yeah, absolutely. I think the palette has to serve the tonality of the game. And I feel like we'll pick up on that theme of tone as we move through here. Uh, It's interesting that, I mean, I wasn't expecting that answer that you started with one and then you went to 10 later down the road and then played everything in between. Uh, I didn't start with one at all. I haven't. The first time I beat one was like a couple of months ago, thanks to the Pixel Remaster. Because yeah. the NES game is ridiculous. Oh, it's hard. How did you man. play that as a kid? How? Oh, it's How? funny. It's funny. It was like this kind of, uh, what's the word? Like white whale, you know, <laughs> for me and my brother. Because <laughs> like, like, it's just this this game that is, you know, we're playing like Mario and stuff. Like, it's tough because every NES game is like Dark Souls level, right? But it's beatable. Yeah. Like, we beat Mario 3 and we loved it and stuff. But it's always Final Fantasy, which we loved it. It's so cool. Like all these monsters and like this crazy fantasy and these weapons and like these magical things. So amazing. Like for your imagination as a kid, FF1. Because even with playing the Pixel Remaster, you know a lot of the story is implied. Uh, right. Yeah. And you kind of, what does your mind do as like a, you know, a little kid? Is you're like, whoa, that's so cool. There's like a, there's like the elves and they put this guy to sleep, the king, and like there's a dark elf and everything. You fill in like this whole story in your head, right? So, and like with the stuff with Garland, like, wait, he was a knight before and he, you know, he fell from grace and he kidnapped Sarah and everything. It's just such a cool uh, way to play it. So I feel, uh, yeah, it, it, I love the imagination of it to, to sum up my, my ranting. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, I appreciate that because, I mean, children, as we were children, we had maybe more wild and uncontrolled anime uh, imagination rather. Yeah. Uh, whereas as adults, it seems like we have to require a little more focus in order to wield yeah. our imagine imagination. Uh, and so playing final fantasy one through for the first time as an adult is an odd experience because I'm just like, okay, oh, where I'm do sure. I go next? But as yep. a kid, have, have like, fun wandering playing, around. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly I, you know like as a kid you're just like i enjoy being in this world i'm not yep. thinking about like the steps to reach the credits but as an adult yes. i'm like i got a hundred thousand games to play i need to finish this and yeah you have a schedule next, exactly right? and short like 10 second tangent for like 10 yeah. 15 years i was like so i realized after playing breath of the wild that i was like man it's just so you know follow the dot on the map Tells you exactly who to talk to. Like it's so like homeworky, you know, games these days. There's no there's no joy anymore. And then I played Breath of the Wild and it brought me back to being like a kid on the N64 or whatever, mm. you know, whatever game is that in Breath of the Wild, I was like, I want to run up that hill for no reason because it looks fun. I want to yeah. see what's up there. I don't need I don't need a reward. I just want to jump off that thing because it looks fun. I want to climb that wall. And I think yeah. that is uh what people are trying to achieve now in games is bring back the imagination, not just like, you know, simulator feel if that makes any sense right so i yeah. love that uh and i think that's a big thing when you're a kid is i just want to play around i just want to wander around and i think uh they're just kind of getting back to that feeling honestly with gaming they lost it for a little bit i think in like the ps3 era yeah i gotta i mean games is work you know do this mm-hmm. go from mm-hmm. point a to point b bring item to this person uh i gotta agree about breath of the wild um it reminded me of zelda one it was just like yes. sheer yep. exploration. There's no mini map to guide me in Zelda one. When I discover something, I discover something. Precisely. And so that's interesting, you know, that you started with FF one. Um, my experience was starting with one of the game boy final fantasies, quote unquote, final fantasies, 
right. I think it was Final Fantasy Legend. And oh, then I yeah. went to Final Fantasy IV. Uh, mm. Skipped five, of course, because it wasn't available. And yeah, then when I played... Play. No, not at all. Uh, and then when I played Final Fantasy VI, um, it was one of those games that... I feel like I didn't understand the first time I played it as a kid, mm. but it definitely resonated with me. Definitely stuck with me. And today it remains one of my favorite games of all time. Um, so it's an interesting experience that I think people can come at final fantasy six from multiple angles. Either you played it back in the day, you played it for the first time you caught on a, up on it a bit later. Um, but I think it has something to say to, every each one of those experiences in a different way so as far as series context goes so we've kind of been talking broadly here yeah. uh you know you played 10 a question i want to ask you is did you mm, not just did you find it hard personally to go backwards from 10 to super nintendo from ps2 to super nintendo and on top of that what would you say to people who Find it difficult to do that, to go back to like the 2D eras, 8-bit, 16-bit. I personally didn't find it hard uh, because PS2 was like when I got it was new. It was like, what are these graphics? This is crazy. So, you know, it wasn't like we'd been in that era for so long that I couldn't imagine pixelated pixelated Uh, art and stuff. So for me, it was very, a very easy thing. Also, I was a very imaginative person and I am in general. mm -hmm. So for me, it, it wasn't so hard. And I also love the series. So like if I play with, I grew up playing FF1, FF6 to me is still like amazing. It still looks cool because it's so much uh, of a jump. I would say to people who have trouble with that, uh, I mean, I wouldn't try to force anyone. Like like if someone right. said to me today, I want to get into Final Fantasy, which one do I play? There's 900 of them. I would say, well, <laughs> honestly, FF7 Remake or FF10 uh, Remaster. FF7 Remake in that it is the most like up to date just beautiful it's got in my opinion the best like the culmination of every final fantasy's battle system ever in one thing mm-hmm. uh it's a perfect introduction to the series and like ff10 is quite dated at this point right it is it's a retro game at this point yeah. I, I would say even the remaster you know it, it has a older system so i would say if someone is more like coming from an action game type background trying an rpg ff7 remake all day if they beat it and love it then i'd say oh cool you might enjoy FF10, FF12, like a little bit more cerebral experiences, uh, perhaps, and uh, and go from there. But the jump to straight to pixel art for a new person, I personally would never recommend it. I would say that only if they really love the series uh, with like a more modern experience. Uh, if you're having trouble with it, I would say the pixel remaster is is your way in, man. Like the music is is really going to help people. I think uh, being more up to date and and performed. I think even just widescreen is a nice thing, right? If you're playing on your TV, you don't have to do the square letterbox. Um, there's a lot of uh, advantages to it, for sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think there's a lot of clarifiers in there that you mentioned with the person that you're talking with. If yeah. they're comfortable you know, going back uh, or not, uh, sometimes people might be comfortable going back as far as PS2, as far as Super Nintendo, maybe as far as NES. Yeah, uh, that's that's tough. But, that's a stretch. Yeah, NES, yeah, it can be rough. I mean, I love a lot of NES games, but man, I just could not play NES Final Fantasy one. So I think taste is is a great part of uh, considering the answer to that question. But yep. uh, 
definitely I would agree. I think Final Fantasy VII Remaster, the combat um, is highly enjoyable in that one. Uh, where does Final Fantasy VI land in your personal ranking of Final Fantasies? That can just be pure favorites or however you want to phrase that. Like, is this in your top three? Uh, it's it's a it's a tough question as as we all know right us us like kind of <laughs> ff fans who played them all it's i personally don't feel i almost don't feel comfortable just because it's almost a different medium like look at ff6 right. like how can you possibly compare ff6 to ff7 remake like you have real actors and like mocap and and like voice and emotions on screen versus like pixel art Right? How can you possibly compare it to you as right. like a, it's it's like comparing drawing to like an opera performance? It's like I don't, I don't know. It's not even comparable. So I think uh, is it ranked very high? Do I think it's one of the best Final Fantasies? Absolutely. I adore the game. I love it. Like I said, it's the apex of that time. Uh, me personally, I love filmmaking, right? And I love cinematics. So like FF10, FF7, FF8, like those are so uh, big in my mind as far as the visuals. Mm. But I mean, yeah, it's 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 easily in my top five like i don't know if i could say it's top three because the comparison is kind of absurd at this point and like right. how do i how do i rank seven <laughs> remake with seven like are they one you know thing is it a different game so i don't know i i would say sure it's in my top three but <laughs> like that's it's a tough it's a tough like i don't know there's like there's like seven games in my third spot you know yeah i can empathize with that dude there's like you said there's a lot of games um I know, so like I married a woman who uh, has difficulty picking favorites, and that's just her personality. Congratulations and for me. For so, well, thank you. And for me, you know, opposites attract, right? You know that. Yeah. Uh, for me, I'm just like impulsive. I'm like, this is my favorite, and it's going to be my favorite forever. So that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I don't know why that works. I don't know what the personality thing is there, but for me, it's yeah. best final f- or top favorite final fantasies let's say right. uh C- chrono trigger tactics six and those are just the ones that i've enjoyed the most and yes chrono trigger is a final fantasy folks you can great great later. choices great cho- i mean tactics is <laughs> tactics is a freaking masterpiece i cannot wait for this rumored uh tactics remaster that's that's a, that's a thing yeah i hadn't heard that rumor and i just got goosebumps yeah so well i'll put it to you like this there was a leak that said Chrono Cross Remaster, Tactics, rem- and people were like, yeah, okay. And look what they just announced. So, or, I'm sorry, Chrono Cross. Chrono Cross, yeah. right? So, look what just announced. Yeah. like, hmm, that's probably coming now. Holy shit. Oh, wow. excuse my language. But yeah, no, very, it's all good. Very... <laughs> you <laughs> can edit that out if you want. No, yeah, no, very, we're going to uh, put a Kefka laugh over the top of that or something. Perfect. Oh, perfect. I did a cosplay <laughs> of Kefka. I don't know if you got that deep into my What? I didn't yeah. see that. Oh, I, uh, oh, man. So I'll tell you that you can feel free to cut this if you don't want to include it. But I did a a, a competition playthrough with my friend Crystal through FF6 last year. And we did a, a death counter uh, race. Like, how many, how many times will you die? Like, less than the other person. And just how many KOs, like, not, not game overs. So how many characters die? And it was so much fun. But for the finale, we did, like, Kefka cosplay. And I... Oh, uh, man. <laughs> yeah, it's ridiculous. But I was like, I did like shirtless Endgame Kefka. <laughs> like, like, I was just full makeup, like laughing and cackling. So yeah, it was it was a thing. Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, you need to send me a link to that afterwards. I, I have to. I will. Yeah, it's on like my Google. Twitch. If you go to my Twitch channel, it's on the Twitch trailer. I did that's, see your Waka, awesome. which I appreciate as a Hawaiian. 
I was like, <laughs> oh, I, I didn't know. That's amazing. Yeah, I love Waka. Yeah. He's he's too much, man. Character character growth, character growth. You know. Yeah, one of the best character growths in FF history, man. Waka. Definitely. But no, to definitely. to circle back around, I I have mm-hmm. so much trouble with that question because I love Final Fantasy, like period. Mm-hmm. Like I don't care what game it is. I I really love every single one. There's games I love more. There's things I would mm-hmm. tweak on certain ones, but like I just love the games. I love the art. I love the music. I could play, you know, anyone or revisit anyone and and find a ton of enjoyment. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, I mean, that's realistic, you know. Like when I ask these sorts of questions, uh, it's always fascinating to me to see how people rank things. Sometimes they yeah. rank things on the basis of here is my objective critical analysis of the entirety of the series, and sometimes they rank them on I played this in the summer of '94, and it changed the way I look at art like yeah i agree completely valid but Mm -hmm. both very different approaches totally totally and for me it's more just like these are my some of my favorite artists and my most inspiring Uh, artists uh for me personally that i look up to so like you know even if it's a if they put out a game that is not like my absolute favorite you know it's not like i'm gonna whine or be like ah i can't play like it's okay cool like i can't wait to see their next project like realistically Mm -hmm. artists can't be absolutely perfect on everything they ever produce that's it's a lot to ask you know so, yeah, um, especially on the massive moving machine of like a triple A video right. game with hundreds, hundreds of yeah, yeah, hundreds of people where if, you know, one person drops the ball, that has a ripple effect, you know? Right. This isn't Mozart or anything. Yeah, exactly. It's not like it's <laughs> that's why I always love when people are like, I can't believe Nomura did this. It's like, do you think Nomura has like absolute power and control of every <laughs> single thing? It's like tyranny. So, like, yeah, like I always laugh about like, you know. Like whatever uh, plot, but I won't spoil anything from other games since it's not on this. But you know, some people will be like, "I can't believe No More did that." It's like as if he like snuck in and like added a <laughs> massive animated scene that took like hundreds of people to make, and like no one knew. And they're like, "Dang it, he he's got us again." We didn't even know, and we published <laughs> the game. We didn't know that scene was in there. Like, it's like, come on, guys. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, it's the I want to speak to a manager. It's always the manager's fault. Exactly. Um, exactly. Yeah. But that, that seems to work more in restaurants, perhaps. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, narrative, let's circle down on narrative. Uh, okay. it, it's where I wanted to spend the bulk of this conversation. Um, there's Perfect. questions that could be had and talking points that could be had really about gameplay. Um, you know, just like I think the ATB system's rad. I think there's a lot of like cool exploitables in here. And we might talk on some of that later, but the narrative... Uh, and again, thinking about what is Final Fantasy VI about was just really stood out to me and I think was reflected in a lot of questions and comments that we received. Uh, there's an opening statement and question here from a gamer looks at 40 who said games often struggle with building meaningful relationships between characters. Modern mm. games are getting better at it, but it's still a challenge to balance player expression and character building story beats. How did Final Fantasy VI manage to create these deep connections through pixel art and text, especially with Locke and Sellies or Celes? Oh gosh. And so I spent my entire life calling her Sellies. <laughs> it's it's it hard almost to drop impossible. Those. Yeah, it yeah. is. It's a habit. I, I beg your pardon. If there's any Celeses out there, I'm sorry. Uh, but I like what you said earlier, Phil, yeah. about these are different it almost feels like it's different media it almost feels like yeah. or different mediums rather it feels like when you're going back this far you're reading like a novel 
Oh, uh, absolutely. As opposed to yeah, something yeah. that more represents a movie. Yeah, totally. And like, you know, also I'm I'm totally game. You guys should be able to pronounce the names any way you want. If it was never said in the game, like, <laughs> yeah, I think I think her name yeah. could be Celise. I think it could be right, Celeste. Right, right. Celeste is in Celestial. Yeah. Like, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Like, if it wasn't said, it's like my my cousin pronounced Cloud's name Claude. <laughs> I was like, huh? Wait, yeah. now I am as a linguistic uh, fan. I I looked up uh, Celeste once and going into like some of the roots and stuff like that with the word. I was like, I was convinced it's Celeste mm-hmm. um, now, but I'm, I'm going to say Celeste every once in a while. And if yeah. people want to nitpick about it, then that's their problem. Yeah, I'll say that. That's their the problem. Claude, that's hilarious. Yeah, that one. I was always like, okay. That one's out of control. You got to <laughs> like that's too much. Everything else is okay. But um, yeah, I I think it's a lot of it is they just decided to. You got to remember that storytelling was like gaming was not known for storytelling at this point, mm-hmm. right? Like FF4 is even a massive step for gaming storytelling, right? It's not a thing. You know, you had like text games and stuff. That's different. But this is mm-hmm. this is them taking the time. To you know, for for instance, Locke and Celis is t- taking the time to 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 try and bring growth to characters who are you know a few pixels on a screen, and how they did it is like you just said, it's it reads more like a novel, and they would actually have scenes that aren't just basically you know very rudimentary like a way to progress the story. Have these asides where it's okay, we're gonna take five minutes and we're gonna have you read something uh, that's you know several paragraphs of text. And, uh, you know, there's no descriptors or anything. There's no prose, but it's it's just dialogue. But we're going to do this uh, and try and make these characters something more. And that's why I think FF6 is particularly impressive, because even with Seven, with, you know, the kind of Lego people aesthetic, they have a <laughs> lot more. Like, they can move the characters in certain ways, and they can do the pre-rendered right. cutscenes. The fact that Six, you know, these characters stand out to us so much says so much about uh, the achievement for them. And I feel it's brave for that time as well to kind of gamble and and spend that much time because there there's times where if you're reading it the first time and not kind of scrolling through it, those are long scenes, man. Like the opera, you know, in FF6, yeah. even though it's musical, it, it's a lot of reading. So I think it's it's cool because it gives they were able to do that by giving us credit as an audience, right? Like, how do you ever voice any sort of like deeper narrative? You give the audience credit. Right? You, you give the audience a level, uh, you assume a level of intelligence and a level of understanding, uh, a level of being able to understand art uh, and comprehend it or some art literacy. And I think that's how they're able to do it. They were able to say, let's let's spend some time here and people won't get mad. They'll enjoy it. So I think that mm-hmm. was the step in the direction that brings us to FF10 with like 10 minute, you know, pre-rendered amazing scenes and stuff. Uh, I think it started here. After the thrilling success of the Gaia Seed Kickstarter, transmedia company Bifrost Bridge Studios has turned its sights to Patreon. Through their crowdfunding campaign, you can gain access to the page-by-page graphic novel blending neurodiversity with utopian ideals, their science fantasy tale, Gaia Seed, as well as high-res digital content and rare physical content, even awesome retro gaming gear such as we've been giving away on Wednesday nights on Twitch. Help build the future by encouraging technical literacy and empowering young voices by visiting patreon.com forward slash Bifrost Bridge Studios. Link in the description below. Final Fantasy VI is kind of a bridge between what is a more, uh, let's say, linguistic language, uh, mm-hmm. what more represents, resembles rather, a book, 
And then what more resembles cinema coming down the road later, mm -hmm. uh, it's replaying Final Fantasy V and getting really into it. What really strikes me about five, just as a side note, is how humorous it is and how mm -hmm. expression, Very expressionful, fun. expressive, <laughs> expressionful, how <laughs> expressive the the characters are. And they're tiny. They're super tiny on yeah. the overworld map, but they have the, you know, butts or Bart's is always jumping around. He's holding his head. He's pumping his fists mm -hmm. and they can look shocked. They can look happy. They can laugh. And just those little, little emotional cues. Um, can't really carry the story on their own, but it is the weight of the text. But then to think that that text had to be filtered to get into what was not the primary language, but it had to be localized and translated. Yeah. That to me is fascinating that it was so successful at conveying its meaning at all. Agreed. Absolutely. And it's funny you mentioned the gestures before and stuff like, you know, kind of using FF5 gestures like he's jumping around and stuff. Look at how in FF7 they do the same thing. Mm -hmm. You know, when Barrett's angry, like how do you voice anger with a Lego guy? Let's have him like <laughs> smash his fist down. Let's have him do this. Cloud does a lot of face palms and stuff, right? Like they they found ways to kind of voice emotion without describing what's happening, right? And Hands I think it's mind. so cool. Yeah, exactly. Like very over-exaggerated stuff, you know? And I think it's uh, it's awesome. Like that's, that's a great example on FF6 is the the apex example of pixel art, you know using the medium limitations to your advantage and i think that's why it's another reason it's so good yeah yeah definitely i so cinematic language um was something that you brought up previously when we were talking about talking points mm -hmm. um and coming from somebody who has a background in studying cinema learning about cinema and discussing cinema what else is there in Final Fantasy VI? Because, I mean, honestly, I had thought of it for years as a novel with some pictures attached mm -hmm. to it um, because it is so epic in that regard. It feels like you're reading, you know, a classic War and Peace or something like that. Yeah. But, I mean, do you think cinematic language was still being developed here? Or what would you pinpoint as the excellent, like the standout examples of that language in this game? So I would say it's like, it's a combination of a couple of things and the visual storytelling of the game, I think why it's so smart is the choices they made is something I realized looking back at these games is what does it resemble a stage play, right? So how smart are they yeah. for putting an opera in the game? Like when you're looking at a stage, <laughs> right? What is it? If you think about it from a cinematic standpoint, it's this top down view, like this kind of bird's eye view, crane shot, whatever you want to call it, uh, of all this stuff. So how do you, if you're trying to be a visual storyteller, uh, and like someone who appreciates cinema, clearly like the Square Enix guys, right? They're obsessed with it. How do you voice this visual storytelling? As you say, okay, let's let's lean into that. Let's let's kind of treat it like a play. Let's have an opening where you know the Magitek are marching through, and we do this kind of three D scrolling uh, ground, uh, these three D elements and everything, which we're seeing amplified in the Pixel Remaster, right? It's so, like they find ways to do it, and. Uh, talking about certain seeds we have like the serpent trench where it's like this very uh special sequence where it's kind of like pseudo 3d and everything when you get the airship it feels like whoa the view just changed we're always in the same top-down angle you know the view of the world changes a huge moment right so i think they find ways to use that to their advantage the fact that it's always locked in and uh for me that's one of the impressive things about it is it feels like a stage play 
uh, and they play with that to the point where they're like, let's let's put a play, let's put an opera in the story. <laughs> I think it's so cool, it's so clever. But yeah, it's very meta. It is. It's very meta. It's very self-aware. And I think, again, like I said before, this is the jumping off point where you could tell they're really starting to play with cinematic language, even though they can barely do any, they're still doing it. And that's what's so cool. Whereas with FF7, they're like, finally, we can go absolutely insane and do every idea we want. So I think that's why FF6 is, again, so important for just kind of the the gaming medium, uh, visual storytelling in general. Hmm. Oh yeah, you can't you can't have like you know how do you use like the one eighty rule or the rule of thirds and stuff in FF six like you can't so much <laughs> right so what do they do they find other ways and that's that's kind of what I got from it but when you uh, next time you play it uh, think about these things and I think a lot of people who are listening might might have a deeper appreciation for it considering how limited the the medium is for that sort of storytelling. Yeah. You remember perhaps as a kid wondering, what does the backside of this house look like? Yeah. You know, like, exactly. what does it look <laughs> behind yeah. this wall? You know, because we're only looking at it from one direction. Yeah. Uh, but that's that's what they had, whether, whether that was just pure technical limitation or that was deliberate in that. The, I like how you say that, that it's framed like it's a stage play. Yeah. Uh, Totally. And with all of that going on with the conflict between hardware limitation and, you know, deliberate perspective, uh, it's fantastic that the game can speak volumes uh, with the traits and resources that it had available. I always tell this story in Chrono Trigger. Um, just not really spoilers. And one of the characters names is he's a frog. Okay. And he was cursed to be a frog, but <laughs> yep. there's, there's a, a back, uh, a flashback rather where, uh, he's, he is cursed. He, he was a boy and he falls off. He sees his, uh, he sees his, his master killed, uh, and he falls off a waterfall and he's a frog now. And it's such a still scene. Mm -hmm. Um, and the music kicks in as well. The music of course, carrying a lot, I think of emotional weight, in games back then, uh, alongside the text. But I was uh, playing through that game with family members in the room who were watching, mm -hmm. and we're chatting and having fun, and then that, that scene happens, and everybody went quiet. Mm. Uh, people who played games and people who didn't play games. And it was like just a moment of being captured by the story and captured by like the sadness and stillness of that moment. And I think that that's something real special. Obviously we're not talking about Chrono Trigger, but in final fantasy six, there's certainly a wealth of moments like that. Yeah, Heavy hitting moments. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Indie rabbit tree asks, there are a lot of heart wrenching moments in this game. Which one got to you the most for me? It was seeing cyan, seeing his wife and daughter on the phantom train. Definitely a sad moment. How about for you? That that one really stands out. Yeah, I was gonna say that, or when they when they eventually when they originally pass away, it because it's yeah. such a it's such a like I love Cyan. He might be my favorite character. We'll see. We'll talk about it later. I'm sure. Mm -hmm. But I uh, I relate to him you know, as a martial artist, and it's just so cool that again in games they don't really take the time to voice grief in games like so much. Yeah. You know, a little bit they'll they'll throw a line here and there, but. I, I think the fact that they put in a sequence with the Phantom Train to kind of find a way to showcase it without just having like endless uh, regurgitations that he's he's sad, he's he's grieving and everything. Like they took this huge actionable scene 
which has an awesome boss and a great dungeon and everything to, to really voice this man's grief uh, to, to get to that scene, to earn that scene where, you know, they, they go away on the train and to have his friends there be for, be there for him and everything. It kind of develops their relationship. I think it's a, I think it's a very powerful sequence. I would say probably that first moment uh, later, there's a lot though. There's a lot of stuff in your end game. Like even like Tara learning about her backstory, her identity was, was very powerful. I felt, uh, yeah, but yeah, yeah, I would definitely. say the the cyan original family mode that that actually hit me kind of hard last time I played. I don't know why exactly. Hmm. Uh, I feel like it's the basic principle of show don't tell, right? You yeah. Could, like you said, you could have the character be like, "I am sad constantly," and yep. telling the you the player that he is sad, but seeing his sadness, especially yeah. revisiting it, stings. You know. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's one thing to see them pass away. I mean, obviously, the death of a spouse, the death of a child, that's about as horrible as it gets. Yeah. Uh, but then to see that farewell happening in a scene in real time, I think, is particularly uh, powerful. Um, so, yeah, I have to agree. That's a that's a, a very strong moment. There are certainly other powerful moments in this game. One that always sticks out to me is the coin toss. Oh, uh, so good. The two brothers. Yeah. And that's another example of music just carrying so much weight. Nobuo uh, bringing it. The coin song is. <laughs> Absolutely. So, so good. Yeah. And I feel like those things, um, they make these characters feel like more than what they were a couple of pixels across. Yep. Um, they make them feel alive. Uh, they make them feel like they're like they're they're real, like they have feelings. You know, you get to see again, you get to see what's happening to them uh, and you get to see their feelings develop and not just, you know, being told their feelings. Mm-hmm. But as we move down here to characters, um, before we get to favorites, I love that you said Cyan is your favorite martial artist. That's awesome. Uh, he growing up, he looked like my stepdad. Like really? his, his profile <laughs> pics. So I'm just like, that's amazing. Why is my stepdad in this game? But protagonist uh, is a talking point here. Uh, Final Fantasy six famous for being, you know, what a lot of people say, having an ensemble cast mm-hmm. uh, that it's difficult to pick out a protagonist. And I've heard it said that, you know, you could interpret six as any one of these characters could be the protagonist. I don't know about that. I feel like personally that there's, I don't agree there with that. Are, <laughs> yeah, a handful of and that to me is a statement that feels like a gesture more than a yeah, truth. Yeah. But it's like, yeah, Shadow but, is the main character. I'd love to hear someone defend that point. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Realm is the main character. Yeah, like exactly. n- no, I don't think so. I don't I don't think so. The yeah. third blue mage is not the, yeah, is yeah. the main character. Exactly. But uh yeah, I feel like there's a core cast out of the what is it 12 or 13 playable characters mm-hmm. uh 14 even there's a lot i think it's 14 from i remember yeah. being an even number whichever one it was okay it's probably 14 yeah definitely uh but i feel like there's four you know that are that are like the really key I agree. protagonists yeah. games with coffee ass who could you argue is the primary protagonist of six and why do you think so phil i i have to say tara because mm-hmm. when you think about narrative structure right like Take away all the other characters. Who is the person that drives the full narrative, like the full plot progression? It's Tara. It's Tara right. every single time. Like there are amazing character moments uh, for Locke, for Celis, uh, for Cyan, but they're they're not the main character, not the protagonist who drives the plot, who drives the narrative. 
Uh, also, in relation to Kefka, like in the opening of the game, who did Kefka, you know, interact with in, in, in his past the most and everything? It's, it's Sarah, right? So it kind of is this, uh, to pit those two against each other is the, I think, kind of one of the stronger uh, narrative ties or narrative threads of the entire game, the entire story. And it's funny because people would probably argue, uh, oh, but Terry, you know, at one point, you know, you don't get to use her as much. And it's like, mm-hmm. that doesn't mean she's not the main character, you know? Like you don't get right. to use uh, uh, Surge, really, kind of in Chrono <laughs> yes. for a little bit, right? Doesn't mean he's not the main character, right? So it's right. Uh, she she drives the entire structure of the story, in my opinion. Yeah, the difference between well, confusing perhaps protagonist with point of view character, like a point of view yep. character can mm-hmm. change, but some interesting observation I've heard on the term protagonist is the protagonist is the one to whom the, the game or the story rather means the most. So Tara is the one that remains most relevant from start of game to finish of game. Now I could hear arguments that, uh, Tara for world of order and then Celeste for world of ruin are kind of these dual protagonists. And certainly there's a, key theme of duality through this game i think mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but i think primarily i it's it's terra yeah i mean you gotta game. you gotta think of too what what is the whole what makes a story right it's not like awesome scenes it's conflict right so oh, what is, what is My the goodness. yeah right so what is like <laughs> the deepest the deepest uh conflict who is it most tied to is terra again her whole backstory is is the conflict what is what is the first conflict is introduced it's like oh this girl has a slave crown. We can control her. Who put it on her? Kefka, right? Like that's it. That's the 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 conflict right off the bat. Is like, who is this girl? Like, can she get free will back? And you know, from there, you control her yourself, and everything. You become her, and then you meet all these awesome people, and you get viewpoints, like you said. But that's kind of the world introduction that carries right to the end. Yeah, man, I'm so glad I'm talking to you because look, look, you said the thing about conflict. Mm-hmm. Uh. Like what are stories about? How many, you know, I know you've seen a lot of movies. I know you've played a lot of games. How often <laughs> have you seen it where uh, you run into those passive characters? We were talking about this with uh, Octopath Traveler. I don't know if you played that one. I haven't. I, I hear okay. it's like from people who are really into story. The story isn't mm-hmm. that good, but I own the yeah. soundtrack and listen to it. It's like fantastic. So I'm very torn. <laughs> Soundtracks, yeah, it's great. It's great. Yeah, I'm very torn. Uh, well, with the eight characters there, and we discussed this on that episode that we did on Octopath, uh, but one of the issues that I found with the characters is there's a lot of times where they're just purely passive. They're like waiting right. around for something to happen. There there's no go. conflict. And if there's no conflict, there's no story. It's just yeah, there it's you go. a it. sequence of people waiting in line for something to happen in the story. And so, I mean, I've played other games in which there's no conflict. I've watched movies in which I'm like, what is going to happen? Because nothing's happening. Yeah, nothing's happening. Exactly. Yeah. So you need that. Yeah, absolutely. And you need that. And I feel like Six has that in droves. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And like the conflict really is is, tends to tie back to Kefka in general or like things Mm -hmm. that are related to Kefka. Right. So I think it's pretty cool that. Again, that's introduced right off the bat with with Kafka and Terra and the opening kind of flashback that you see there. And with uh, with Terra and Kafka, then there's a kind of personal relationship there, right? There's a difference between a more aloof antagonist and a personal antagonist. And you know this with like Final Fantasy IX, right? What is 
what is the end of Final Fantasy IX kind of famous for? Necron just like <laughs> yes, popping up nonsense, out of nowhere. Nonsense, nonsense, right. positive. What is going on? <laughs> yeah, I, I would and argue that a more a more applicable one is maybe like Vane from Final Fantasy twelve. Because yeah. it's like he doesn't know who the hell Vaughn is, it, like really. Yeah. <laughs> like, or even right. like he knows who Ash is, who I think is really the main character of Twelve, right. honestly, because of Thank conflict you. again. Yeah. Gosh. It's, it's Ash versus Vane, right? But like, yeah, you have uh, a similar situation. Like I always say, Vaughn is the viewpoint character to for the world building in the beginning, and him and Pinello function absolutely perfect as the world building characters to kind of go from the inside and then slowly open up. Like you get the epic opening, you see Ash, and you see all like the big kingly conflict. But then you get, let's learn about this world. What are the people in the streets doing? Like, what's what's their right. personal conflict? And then it's he becomes a part of the bigger story. And then Vaughn takes a little bit of a backseat. We get back to the main stuff. So I, I think it's great. And a similar thing with Vane is, you know, he doesn't need to know everybody personally to be a, an antagonist, right? Like he uh, and Kefka in this case does, but it's just different types of storytelling, right? Yeah, no, definitely. And amazing points there. I mean, there's, a, again, a difference between a point of view character and a protagonist. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now having addressed the, and I think resolutely having answered the question of who is the protagonist. Yeah. The antagonist. So a short anecdote. Uh, this is a game that my younger brother, I attempted to expose him to all these amazing games from the past for before he, he was born, you know, revisiting these games. And uh, he played Final Fantasy VI. I don't recall that he finished it, but he was he wound up being shocked at the twist that Kefka is the primary antagonist and not the emperor. Ah, uh, yeah. Um, which was nice to see. It's nice to see like a younger because I don't I don't remember that if I was shocked by that twist. But seeing a younger person kind of like, oh, oh, my gosh, Whoa, it's the insane yeah. clown. I thought he was just going to be comedic relief. Mm-hmm. Nope. Uh, question again here from Games with Coffee and another one after that. Uh, it says six introduced a villain in Kafka who was widely regarded as the villain who succeeded where all others failed. He ended the current world and conquered it for his own sadistic and nihilistic ends. All other villains since then have tried to match or even outdo Kefka's actions. So do you think the villains from seven onwards were successful in meeting or even outdoing Kefka? Or do you believe he's in a league of his own? And I think kind of piggybacking on top of that question, uh, a gamer looks at 40 is Kefka a good villain. Obviously not good in the sense of moral, but good (laughs) in, you know, uh, he has all the hallmarks of a bad one. One sided personality, no arc, negative motivation for reaching his goals. Yet we all revere him as one of the best in the series. Is he? So now let's talk a bit about the clown. Uh, How do you feel about Kefka in general as a villain? Do you think he's one of the standout villains from the series? I think he's definitely a standout villain. I personally don't feel he's uh, one of the strongest villains in Final Fantasy. Uh, mm-hmm. I think he functions incredibly well. I, what I personally look for in a character, he doesn't have so much of it, right? Mm-hmm. Like I like I like a very kind of uh, deep character as far as motivation. Kefka is just kind of crazy. He's he's terrifying though, so he functions very well. I think that's why so many people remember him and and like him. Is he's like mm-hmm. a tornado. Right. He's just like a, a force a of force. chaos yes. and yeah. destruction. And you don't even know why it's happening. It doesn't matter. It's going to destroy you. It's going to destroy the world. And 
that's terrifying in a very different way than say uh, a Sephiroth. It's like you you know he has motivation. You know he's a man who uh, has like you know a lot about his psyche. You know why he thinks he's doing things, why he thinks he's right. Kefka is just crazy, right? And because of FF6 being the format we described, there's not a lot of time to unearth that anyway, like why he's doing all this stuff. And he kind of just goes into crazed, you know, speeches at the end that nothing matters. You mentioned nihilism here. It's exactly what it is, right? Nothing matters. Nothing has meaning. Let's just delete everything because life is meaningless, right? It's scary because if you if you saw, if someone like that existed, it's, it's terrifying. But um, I feel there are much stronger villains as far as the character side. Um, am I yes. saying he's a bad villain? Absolutely not. I think he functions fantastically, but there's not a lot of depth to him. He's incredibly one-dimensional, right? Because of that. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that's a bad thing necessarily. It's just a different type of, it's a different choice for a story. Uh, yes. If that makes sense. No, it absolutely makes sense. It's the same. It's, it's the same thing as there's a difference between a POV character and a protagonist. Right. There's, there's a difference between a, you know, developed character and a villain Versus a villain that still provides conflict again, if that's right. central, but that villain is, you know, not so well developed. Like we don't have his backstory. You know what I think of is star Wars. Cause that's obviously what they were thinking of when yeah. they developed a lot of final fantasy games. Absolutely. I love it. Yeah. Uh, Vader, obviously we get, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of his backstory, maybe too much of his backstory. There were, <laughs> there's, there's mm-hmm. perhaps an argument that, you know, we see maybe too much of his whiny youth to begin uh, to continue rather to uh, to hold him in utmost terror. But on the flip side, you've got Emperor Palpatine. And especially in the context of the original three films that were put out, I as a kid, I thought Palpatine was scarier than Vader. Because Vader had a oh, mask absolutely. On. Yeah. I mean, but if you're talking Pal- about just like episode four, Vader yeah. is very scary. But once you realize like, oh, he has a master. What the hell? Who's yes. this guy? Um, yes. And I think it's great. And, you know, people people have their favorite movies, of course. But mm-hmm. I, I personally love the Star Wars prequels because what it does from a story point is you see Darth Vader in the uh, the original trilogy. And you're like, oh, my God, he's like this evil, you know, crazy guy. And then at the end, you know, he redeems himself. But then you go back to the prequels and you're like, it's so tragic because he's this bright eyed young youth who is just trying to do everything he can to like cling to what he loves and save what he loves. And, you know, of course, because of a prophecy, like (laughs) actively destroys everything, you know, and gets, it's totally manipulated by this creepy old man. It's so sad. Like his, it is, it's so sad. And I think it's more sad because he's like this really kind of, uh, bright eyed, like, like young kid. He's not like, you know, in his thirties or forties, he's, I think he's like, I think he's early twenties when he becomes Darth Vader. That's terrible. Like your brain yeah. isn't fully developed until you're like 25. <laughs> <laughs> like what the hell? It's so yeah, it's sad. So yeah, yeah. So you know, no, a lot of us I... wanted to think of him as like this crazy war hero who's like older when he became Darth Vader. But I mean, it's just not how it was written. You know? No. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think that there's you know there's a there's a distinction there that I would make as far as my appreciation of the prequels uh, that conceptually, I think the idea of you know, trying to form that the start of that redemption arc for Vader um, is compelling conceptually. I'm just not sure about like the execution of the, the prequels as a whole, like attack of the clones. I was sleep through, but I think the the third one, what's the third one? Revenge. I think revenge of the Sith is, is 
one of the best films. There's a couple of weak scenes, of course. Like we think yeah. of the like the the love scene with uh, Anakin and Padme. It's just like very stilted dialogue. You know, it comes yeah, off yeah, a little yeah. a little stiff. But I mean, there's some there's some powerful scenes in that. I and the thing about the prequels is I encourage people who are like kind of you know watched them back in the day and haven't really revisited is check them out sometime and just appreciate the world building that the prequels that it's crazy like the original trilogy there's not that much like we're kind of just with Luke doing his thing everything like the whole Republic and Coruscant there there's so much that have the whole history of the Jedi and everything like oh man it's so cool from that perspective so even if you just appreciate them as like a kind of a world building device or something if they're not your favorite like there's so much that that was added to star wars from those films like from george kind of giving us his his full vision that's another thing yeah. I, I love about him even if like it's not your favorite if it's not your cup of tea with the tone and stuff yeah no i still go back and watch him uh i love watching him with my kids now yeah. there's scenes in revenge of the sith i gotta skip with my kids but oh for sure uh <laughs> overall i think revenge of the sith is the strongest of the of the prequel three uh, I still really enjoy episode one uh, a lot. Phantom Menace. Oh, me too. Yeah. Um, I mean, just it's got a, one of the best like action sequences in the history of. Oh my gosh. Life. Duel of Fates. Oh, yeah. it's, it's un, unrivaled. Man. And, and episode three, if you didn't know this has the longest sword fight in film history. <laughs> and it is, it is like, it is one of the best sword that. fights in film history. And it's funny because a lot of people say like, <laughs> oh, it's so kind of like, it's too clean or something. But if you watch any person who's like a medieval uh, arms and armaments expert who has studied like historical European martial arts and sword fighting. Like that is a very good, like almost perfect fight scene as far as like actual sword fighting. Huh. Like they're actually in full guard positions, the entire fight. Like it's incredible. Even when they spin, they're covering themselves when they spin and like pairing and stuff. It's, it's unbelievable. The level of, uh, of work that into it, it is like worth massive respect for that movie, you know, beyond even the, the story. So check it out. And uh, yeah, yeah. What one video? I'll just shout him out. Shadowversity is a uh, is a awesome YouTuber. He has like several million subscribers and stuff. He is a, a medieval expert and sword fighter, and he he does a whole breakdown of like frame by frame of that fight, and says it's like the best fight in sword fighting history. <laughs> so, wow! Check it out. Yeah, it's funny because when we were young, a lot of people said, "Oh, it's kind of it's too it's too twirly, it's too whatever." I mean, it's it's correct. You know? Yeah, that's funny. Uh, yeah, yeah. the Obi-Wan Anakin's fight. I mean, that's one of my favorite scenes though. Again, oh, Revenge of the so Sith. Powerful. I think Revenge yeah. of the Sith is fine. The, the, just the, the bare point that I was trying to make though, is that I feel like you can potentially, uh, maybe over explain a character's, uh, motivations and their background to the point to where if you don't execute that properly, uh, or execute it, mm, this is a touchy because we're talking about Star Wars. It's a touchy subject or executed in such a way that people will be satisfied right. uh, versus it's just easier to do an Emperor Palpatine. I mean, all you need to know about him is he's scary and he's evil, you know, oh, but yeah, th that yeah. worked for Return of the Jedi. Right. And so mm -hmm. I feel like there's an analogy there with Kefka that Kefka is just who isn't afraid of clowns. I mean, like. I can't imagine yeah. <laughs> what, what was the last time I even saw a clown, but they're just there. Eh, something a little yeah. off putting about that, but to have a, a scary clown that is like, I don't know if you read comics, but there's a, there's a DC comic in which the Joker uh, obtains 
omnipotence and he just like really like he eats humans like by the millions he's like he chains batman to you know the proverbial rock and has like birds eat his liver out every day just like prometheus yeah 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 straight up philosophical torture to Mm -hmm. the extreme and he's just like breaking down the laws of physics and that is that is the same thing here like for the joker as a character obviously there's there's some analogy there with kefka uh what is a line that the joker had i think it was in the animated series if i'm gonna have a a a backstory i prefer it to be multiple choice that characters have played around with this this character's backstory and it never Mm. perfectly seems to stick there's the killing joke where he was a failed comedian but then there's other interpretations and ultimately it doesn't matter because the Joker, as this force, as this this embodiment of anarchy, is the perfect conflict for Batman, whose backstory we completely know and understand. And so with the characters of Final Fantasy VI, I feel like the, the playable characters, especially the core cast, uh, are well-developed and we understand their backstories. And just the complete antithesis to that is this, this natural cosmic entity that is just going to obliterate existence and how do you how do you face up against that so i feel like in answering his question uh here is kefka a good villain it depends on what you're asking is he a good character yeah is he a good villain in that he provides conflict absolutely right you have to ask yourself does he function does he perform his function in the story well yes he does right so like were they trying to give a deep you know, uh, villain filled with humanity. No. So you can't say they failed on that. Right. They were trying right. to make a, like a, like you said, kind of this terrifying, like tornado of a character who's just insane, which you think is kind of like a comedic type guy. But then it's like, wait, he's committed war crimes. This guy's insane. And then he becomes this, you know, once he becomes uh, super powerful, it's quite scary and you don't need too much. I mean, I like would hope if they were to do a remake or something, they would, you know, show what happened to him. Because it's funny, he actually has a lot of similarities to Sephiroth, right? Kind of like experimented on uh, mm-hmm. type thing for Kefka. I would like to see it, but yeah, does he function? I think he does. And then the first part of that question too, uh, do you think the villains from 7 onwards were successful? I personally don't feel that Kefka won. Everybody says that I don't agree with that personally. Like, <laughs> I feel like he didn't Like he didn't end the world. It's like, yeah, he he caused a lot of damage and like killed a lot of people, but guess who wins in the end? You know, he didn't, he didn't win. Like yeah, guess, he didn't guess build who, his monument to non-existence, right? Yeah, yeah, right. But guess, guess who did win is Arden. That's a that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> Arden Ooh. actually one hundred percent won. Kefka did not. Kefka like gets defeated and dies, you know, and mm. uh, does not end the world. And the friends rise up and destroy him with the power of friendship. You know, his ultimate nightmare. <laughs> you know, like ah, it's all gross, it's so annoying and cringe. Like, well, we're still gonna kill you. So, uh, so yeah. I think uh, I think Arden actually does succeed. I think even like, man, even Sephiroth does some pretty awesome feats. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I don't think he's like, you know, the, the, the only villain in existence who's, who's done this. It's a very shocking moment in the story when he does that and causes a lot of damage, but uh, which was awesome. Like, you don't see that in a lot of games or stories in general. But uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think he's like that uh, different in his own right because he, does, he lacks other qualities of villains. Like, uh, right. for example, Sephiroth, who I've talked about this a million times. I really hope they give us uh, important Sephiroth, like relevant Sephiroth backstory, which is how did he become a war hero? Like, why is he the most respected guy? Why does he have a sword from Wutai, the Masamune? 
Like he's from Shinra. No one in Shinra has Japanese type weapons, only Wutai people. There's so many cool questions there. I want to see like a, you know, Trojan War type episode of the Wutai War. I want to see Sephiroth on the on the front lines. Let's see him defeat, you know, his like Hector if he's Achilles, uh, who has the sword. And and that's how he gets the Masamune, because it's a Wutai weapon. Like there's so much uh there that they could play with. Um, so that's I think uh I think those type of villains are stronger personally. I don't think he's in a league of his own. Uh I love every Final Fantasy villain though, don't get me wrong. Uh, I love the like the Emperor and FF2. I just think like they all have kind of different uh functions. It's it's certainly no failure of the developers. Like I love FF eight and the different like kind of villains that appear, whether it's Adea, Ultimicia. I think they're super unique and super cool. And uh, you know, each each one is different in their own way. But I, I don't think Kefka is the best, personally. Mm-hmm. Like the top yeah. the top of the of the ladder. Of the food chain, huh? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. As far as villains go. I I mean, I think we could agree that there's there's degrees uh, definitely of of quality with some of these. Like I mentioned Necron earlier. I don't know a single Necron fan. How could they be? Uh, yeah. the, <laughs> How could there be? In the Final be? Fantasy. I mean, yeah. there might be one who's just like, oh, marry me, Necron. But I don't yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they're probably it's... doing like Necron fan art and stuff like that. But yeah. uh, <laughs> I think when you're talking about the big hitters, Kafka, no, no. Sephiroth. Kafka and Sephiroth really couldn't be more different in a lot of ways. But yeah. I think what we're really highlighting here is they have to serve the story that they're embedded in. You right. wouldn't just take Kafka and slap him no. as the replacement villain in Final Fantasy XII, right? Yeah, it wouldn't earlier work. With Vane. No, it wouldn't work at all. It works here in this context because this is this story. Jaws works in Jaws. Because yes. the movie is friggin' called Jaws. <laughs> exactly. We don't need to know the backstory. Like, why does this shark have a taste for human flesh? Like, does he yeah. hate humans? Maybe his dad was killed by a human. As <laughs> yeah. a, we it don't need matter. to know about yeah. it. Right. He was exactly. experimented on by, you know, by this <laughs> yeah. evil corporation. It doesn't yeah. matter. The, the shark is still scary because that's Absolutely. the movie. That's that story that's being told. And so Kafka here, I think he's good for six. But definitely yeah. if we're talking as far as good as character development, there's like zero. Yeah. Uh, as far as characters winning, you're right. I mean, they defeat Kefka in the end. Uh, Lavos wins, but it's time travel. So he wins and he doesn't win at the same Yeah, time. yeah, that's different. Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. <laughs> but no, I'm going to dro- drop oh, no, a go bomb ahead. too. I'm going to drop yes. a bomb on, on Kefka fans too, not to, you know, uh, run anyone's parade. But I think the reason Kefka functions well, which he does, and FF6 is because of the medium. Uh, have you ever seen Kefka in Dissidia voiced? No, and thank God I haven't, actually. Yeah, so <laughs> that's, that's kind of all I'll say. Is like Kefka in reality, like if it was an actor and stuff, is mm-hmm. it's just, I don't know if it works, man. A crazy, like, squealing clown. Like, it's not, it's, it's, it's really hard to pull that off. If you have, like, a genius-level actor doing it, yes, it can be more scary, but... Kafka's not scary and he's making jokes the entire game in FF6. And that's where yeah. a lot of it, like when I played it recently, I was like, oh, this is like, he's like slapstick most of the game, yeah. Kefka. And then he becomes yeah. scary. But like, look at Kefka in Dissidia and T and tell me that would be like a good, that style would be a good uh, style in like a, like a film type thing. I really don't think it works. So yeah. I think it's good because like we said, you have to like do these kind of pantomime, big emotion stuff. Kefka, perfect guy for a, for a Super Nintendo, right? But uh, yeah, that's a big it's a big challenge, man, for like a, a cinematic type thing with with an actor with voice. It changes a lot. 
So just keep that yeah. in mind why why he's so good. I think he's a perfect fit for Super Nintendo. I don't think it would work so well for like uh, more modern stuff. I mean, you look at his costume. Uh, yes. I don't think immediately just translating that costume really works, not just in a 3D sphere, certainly not in a live action sphere. I mean, we could see how well Final Fantasy VII Remake, as far as its world building mm-hmm. uh, and its its setting works, because it's a believable setting. It's very modern. Um, and so it, there's a lot of people who have expressed, oh, we need a 3D uh, remake of Final Fantasy VI. We need a remake of Final Fantasy VI at the level of Final Fantasy VII Remake. Spire of Glory was one who I think replied to you, we need a 3D remake. Uh, and it's something I run into quite a bit, but I personally, I don't think that it would work in the same way that Seven Remake works for Seven. They're just, they're mm. different stories. It is a different format. You're right. Um, and seeing Kefka... You know, I'd love to hear Mark Hamill voice Kefka for sure, but oh yeah, it'd be great. But visually and stuff like, does it does it work for an yeah. entire like? You need so, some kind of interpretation there. Yeah, and like I said, he's funny. Like he slaps that. Look at like son of a submariner. Like what? Right. It, how, how does that? Like because I was doing the voice acting like as I was playing the game last time, and I'm like, uh-huh. a lot of these scenes are very hard to play and kind of figure out and like make it intense and not like very very childish and i don't mean childish as in like not good or like kind of cheap i mean childish right like he's making slapstick jokes you know so uh it's it's very difficult to to move that time. it could be done of course there's great writers there's a lot of talent at square enix there's a lot of talent you could get to voice him to act him to mocap but i think i agree that to change a lot for it to land successfully there's a kind of absurdity there, right? That he goes from making these like witticisms mm-hmm. uh, and like jokey, like 1940s jokey jokes yeah. <laughs> uh, to like poisoning a village. Yeah. Like, like, what? <laughs> yeah. What? Yeah. So I think that 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 level of just like surreally childlike and also extremely vicious works specifically for this format again because you can believe that yes. kind of childlikeness to the mm-hmm. character i don't know that i could believe that so much with a guy in a bizarre uh, yeah makeup like and stuff. Soleil costume yeah right because yeah. like i said i even did the cosplay and i had the makeup on and everything and like you know i was doing the shirtless version so no like crazy fluffy frills and stuff so it's already like less <laughs> clowny and less kind of like jester i would say but like yeah it's it's very hard unless you're in absolutely insane which is too much. You can't be crazy, crazy for every single scene. It doesn't work for film, right? You have to kind of give like ebb and flow to performance. So you can't give like your 100% insane voice for every single scene. Mm-hmm. Or like, like how it is in Dissidia, it quickly becomes like, this is cringe. Stop. <laughs> like, please, yes. Please yes, stop. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, so no, I know. I know. Like, Without having experienced Dissidia, I know what you're talking about. At, at a certain point, it wears on the, on the audience. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just too much. Like I said, you can't yeah. give, give it all. Um, it would have to be kind of a more metered like, and that's kind of what I did when I was voicing. I was like, how can you work with this? I ended up going with kind of like this kind of mean, like uh, for like most of his lines. And then he would kind of explode once in a while with his insanity. But um, yeah, look at some, <laughs> if anyone listening hasn't seen it, check out the Dissidia NT cut. You'll be like, Oh God. Yeah. Oh man. I mean, maybe in, in some universe out there, there is a version where Mark Hamill, portrays the character because i feel like i mean the joker the character is called the joker but i feel like mark hamill really created performances over the years where he does that kind of low menacing Mm -hmm. and then he can go high 
and start all over the place yeah. with his voice, but he can control the tone. He can control, you know, when to go for, okay, now I'm being scary yep. and now I'm telling jokes. Uh, and I think that, yeah, that, that balance would have to ex- exist. I'm just glad it's not my job to worry precisely, about. Precisely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Favorites. Uh, question here from a uh, boy that we recognize sector six. Good man. Who is your favorite character in final fantasy six? And why is it gal? <laughs> <laughs> so it's not gal Phil. My, my favorites are, uh, I would say probably Sabin or some people say Sabine for his name, but I would say Sabin cyan, uh, really stand out to me again. Like I'm a martial artist, uh, lived as a warrior monk. You know, that's, that's really kind of on point i love the fact that he gives up a kingdom you know on the on the coin toss and mm-hmm. just goes off to train and live in the mountains like that is that is right up my alley man <laughs> like, so i love i love that character so much uh even though there's so many colorful ones cyan again i love the tragedy um i love the the kind of like stern kind of severe personality uh he's more lofty in his speech you know uh but he he becomes friends with everyone and gets over his grief uh, with everyone i think that's a great that's a great story it's a great character i love Celis. uh fantastic arc like overall yeah. and i think a lot of us agree she's like probably the most standout next to tara as far as like growth and everything mm-hmm. uh as you said like world of ruin at that point but yeah there's i could talk about all of them right they're all fantastic but i would say standouts are probably uh cyan and Sabin. on my recent playthrough they really felt awesome to me like i i, I related yeah, I feel like the cast uh, is really varied. I mean, when you look at them, it's yeah. not just like they're all swordsmen. It's not mm-hmm. just like they're they're all from a certain country. They're they're all from different areas in the world. They all have different backgrounds. I was trying to think of what is the connective tissue, and for a lot of them, it's loss. For a lot of them, mm-hmm. it's what's happened in their past and overcoming that trauma. And we'll get to key themes here in a minute. But just to kind of frame that, I feel like that is that is the thing that ties these kind of disparate, very different personalities together. Um, that said, I, I got to agree with a lot of the voices that you or the names rather that you've shouted out. Mm-hmm. I feel like Tara, Celis, Locke, uh, the brothers and Cyan are kind of the, mm. the, the really the backbone of this story. Um, yeah, it's just so much start- heart, so much heart. Right, it's absolutely, uh, and then you, I think you start getting into characters that don't have as much screen time and the screen time, quote unquote. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the the difficult thing with six, I think. Well, let me address favorites first before we get down into mm-hmm. that. Uh, favorites for me it was Locke. Um, for a while, I, I was felt like Locke was the main character. Um, now not so much, but Locke is just a reliable person. I, he doesn't have like, you know, the amazing magic that Terra has. He doesn't have the connections to the empire that Celis has. He just doesn't have his own kingdom. He's just a guy that's good at pickpocketing, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> but I feel like he represents the everyman in the cast and that he's just kind of like the, maybe the most normal person among the, I lot. was going to say the most. Yeah. He's still like a really yeah. like out there guy. He's like a treasure hunter, suave, badass, but like, Oh, sorry again. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> That's all good. <laughs> but like, yeah, I agree. He's, he's more like, he's more relatable in that. He's not like royalty. You know, he's not a, yes. a half Esper like uh, creature, you know, like one of a kind. He's not uh 
you know, uh, there's a lot. He's not a general like Celis, right? There's mm-hmm. there's so many people that are a lot. And he's just like, I'm just a dude. Like he's kind of like the the Boba Fett or something, you know, or the Django Fett. I'm just trying to make my way in the galaxy, you know. He's yeah, just, he's just doing his thing, and he he stumbles upon this story and wants to help out. So, yeah, and he it feels like he brings the early cast together, um, yeah, just definitely. through sheer force of wanting to help. And so I feel like that's like yeah. at a base level, that's just a really compelling thing. So I like Locke a lot. Tara is a great character. I mean. Yeah, there's a lot of really good ones. Now, what was we mentioned kind of the main key characters. Again, what I was saying is I feel like because there are so many characters in this game, and this may touch on what we mentioned earlier with Ke- with Kefka rather not getting uh, so much development, is the game is not big enough to fully develop all of the characters equally, right? So, I agree fully, yeah. It's the medium yeah, again. There's just no time. Yeah. Yeah, and you've got so at the very bottom you've got like Gogo and Umaro who like, like exist. Non characters, yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's like right. Yeah. Uh, I mean they're also secret. Got, they're also secret, so it's not sure, like Sure, absolutely, yeah. Uh you've got like Mog, um, who's is also there. Gao, we get some of his background. But I feel like you talk about like Mog, Realm, Setzer, um, Gao, we get some of their background, but I don't feel like they're as well developed or as strong as the rest of the characters. The, the again, that kind of the core characters in this. And so, this is leading to a question, Phil. Trust me. Uh, <laughs> okay. And so, I feel like you know, there's a lot of comparisons that have been done in conversations that I've had with Chrono Trigger and with Six. And absolutely, Six has more characters that are playable than chrono trigger whereas chrono trigger kind of focuses on like the like these six or seven people um do you feel like i don't know what is the question do you feel like that's an issue with six that it can't you know take care of all of its children at the same time or there are characters that needed more development for you in your opinion i don't know that's an issue uh, I think it, it's it's more stylistic, like we said, right? They they wanted to clearly tell a sweeping story with many different perspectives and viewpoint characters. Uh, mm-hmm. So I wouldn't say it's really like a, a weakness or a strength. Uh, I think it's a really cool way to kind of give this opera feel, right? Because I think the whole game is like kind of a metaphor for an opera. I think mm-hmm. it's a really cool way to give this kind of really awesome, colorful cast, uh, a lot of different, very easily recognizable people uh, to stand out. And then uh, kind of the Akira Toriyama type of storytelling with Chrono Trigger is is similar in a lot of ways, but still different, as in there's a smaller cast, but uh, he's so good, Toriyama, at designing these like easily recognizable, super, like they all have their own iconography and idiosyncrasies and stuff with these characters. And uh, I, I don't think either one is really is really worse. I agree completely, though, that Chrono Trigger is able to focus more on the, the smaller cast uh, and, and just give more. Because again, mm-hmm. without in the absence of performance in any regard for the act for the characters, right? There's no performance. You're reading text. That's it. There's no <laughs> yeah. acting. There's no sound. There's no voice. There's nothing. Uh, there's not even motion in mocap. Uh, all you have is to, to throw some dialogue boxes up there. So it's just uh, in the interest of time, where do you s- expend that that finite resource, right? And FF6, there's more people. There's less time. Yeah. Yeah. No, definitely. Uh, a question here from Carrie eighty six: Which things could be better? That's that's a tough thing to say because we're so removed geographically, chronologically mm-hmm. from 
what FF six is and when it was created and how yeah. it was created. Uh, for me, sometimes I, I think like if, if FF six didn't have one of its playable characters and not the secret ones, would I miss them? And mm. I don't know. Um, cause I feel like realm Strago, not shadow, um, sets are maybe, I mean, he's the guy with the aircraft. So that's, that's mm-hmm. useful. But one thing that I really wish, uh, I could see with a lot of RPGs, maybe more particularly JRPGs is the characters remaining relevant and being developed over the course of the entire story. Yes. Uh, is there a, a game that you think does that real well? And like, what are the opportunities there? All right. So I think a game that does a really good way, uh, a really good job of kind of keeping all the characters relevant throughout and keeping their uh, their development going is Final Fantasy X. Uh, I talk about this Man! constantly. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I, I talk about it constantly from a from a narrative standpoint. It is just like the most uh, I say it's the strongest narrative structure in Final Fantasy, personally. Uh, even though a lot of us love the characters in seven like so much it's a very character driven story the structure of seven is a little bit all over the place as far as just like a clean Mm. structure 10 is like every single scene is just ruthlessly driving the plot forward driving the narrative forward but it's also developing the characters as it drives the plot forward every single scene because it's a pilgrimage you know every single stop like for example we don't have like the waka riku kind of like side quests where you go off the beaten trail and then like, it's just about them. And we have the whole kind of like Waka becomes a better person and expands his horizons perspective. We don't have that. It happens during the plot, which is like furiously moving forward as other stuff is happening. As we're about to learn the Yuna big, you know, twist secret, you getting this huge Waka growth and everything at the same time. So, uh, and the Riku explaining her backstory and stuff. It's, it's so cleanly done. And I think it's a great example. And, you know, only at the end game do we really lose a little bit just because, I mean, why wouldn't you, right? You want to focus on like Titus and Yuna at the end. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, we don't have like in the final dungeon, like Riku, massive growth and stuff. Um, but that's okay. I think that's, that's how I would have done it myself. So I think that's just a great example overall. And I, I always say that about FF10, just such a powerful narrative structure. Man, I, yeah. Okay. Love that answer. First of all, um, there, I get there are people who dislike Final Fantasy X. There are people who dislike each one of the Final Fantasies. Let's let's be clear. Oh, of course. But yeah. I think that um, it's a very fair answer. Looking at X, uh, what is one of the the standout quotes? This is my story, and multiple mm. characters say that as well. Uh, having all like the the. I mean, I think like all the characters almost join your party right at the beginning is an interesting thing that you don't typically see in JRPGs where you gain characters as you progress, mm-hmm. but then characters remaining relevant, receiving their own, you know, conclusion to their de- developmental arcs at the end, at the conclusion of Final Fantasy X is, I think, something really special. I mean, Waka yeah. overcomes freaking racism yeah like and is confronted yeah like that's huge um yuna finding out details about her father and titus having the big reveal about what's going to happen to yuna Mm -hmm. uh learning about Auron's nature there's so much that happens and you're right it's not like a lot of other jrpgs where 
you kind of have to go off on this separate side yeah. quest in order mm -hmm. to get the finality of that development. It just happens yes. as the total cast moves forward. And maybe that's that's part of Final Fantasy X's dedication to being linear and not kind of, you know, being all over the place. Yep, and why that's I, a I don't massive know. strength that it's linear. Yeah. Like a lot of people, we went through that kind of phase where everybody's like, oh, linear is the worst thing ever and stuff. It's like, have you ever watched a movie? Like, what are you saying? <laughs> like, I read a book. Can't have like, an open world movie. No. Yeah. It's like, dude, open world yeah. books. Yeah, man. Love those. Just like yeah. read about grass and stuff. Like, <laughs> it's crazy. Like trees. It's cool. It's like rocks. Yeah. No, but like, I think it's great. And like you just said, right. Is there like an Oren side chapter where we learn about Oren's backstory? No. In fact, we get simultaneous massive plot points for Yuna Unaleska Jekt, massive reveal about Jekt. Like the whole reason the story happened is because of Jekt. Like, hello, yeah. he's like almost the hero of the story. In this scene, we get Orin's huge reveal in this scene simultaneously, and the massive twist that we're going to fight Unaleska. Like, it just does not stop for anything, mm -hmm. but it does everything at the same time. I think yeah. that's why when I first played it when I was a kid, I was like, whoa, this, there's something different about this game in this story. Yeah. It's so powerful. Yeah, structurally very interesting. And that's a great answer, gotta say. Tired of the endless crusade of shifting through all the marked-up, insincere, bloviated, fake listings dominating the gaming aftermarket? Have you visited joypadlad.com yet? The good guy of retro gaming isn't a moniker you pick up by mistake. Besides for an ever-shifting selection of video games, Joypad Lad boasts a collection of other items and categories ready for your perusal right now. There's gaming-related merch galore, licensed products, comic books, figures, mystery boxes, stickers, magnets, baubles, and trinkets to suit any fancy, new and old, plus new projects coming this year. Check out joypadlad.com and tell them I sent you by accepting this coupon code for 10% off your purchase, RED10. That's RED10, R-E-D-1-0, for 10% off your order. Don't miss out. You never know when you'll find your next grail. Joypad Lad Shop, who just played this recently for the first time, actually. Um, I think, I mean, I empathize with the guy. It's difficult to play a game like this for the first time and tr attempt not to overhype it or not compare it with like literally everything else because yeah, yeah. it's held in such high regard. You expect, you know, in the first hour, it's going to literally blow my socks off. And mm -hmm. it just, it's expectations that I don't think any game can really meet. But I'm going to pie the question here. When you play this game, did you eventually become numb to the fact that almost every character's backstory is that all or some of their family or loved ones were killed with some having almost no character development than that. Uh, <laughs> difficult. A, well, I, I'll ahead. say this to preface this. Remember, I yeah. don't suffer from the disease of, uh, <laughs> of, of playing the games in order, which for a lot right. of people made the it disease. like impossible, <laughs> impossible to ever like FF8, right? I played FF8 before FF7. So I yeah. love FF8. So I love them both. Like, why wouldn't I? Right. But if you played FF7 right. and want FF7 too, like you're not getting that. It's a totally different game. And they're like, we're telling a love story, which is awesome. Yeah. They're artists. They have integrity. They want to tell the story they want to. They're not going to just do FF7 part two, you know? So Forever, I, yeah. I think it's great. Like, uh, but what, what I will say is I don't think, so I'm, I'm not looking at it through rose tinted glasses is what I'm saying. But what mm -hmm. I will say is I don't think they, I don't think that's true for Joypad. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think, that they don't have any other character development in that because in a game where there's no performance, like I said, uh, I assume cyan is included in that. I know a lot about cyan that's inferred. 
And that's the main word here. It's kind of inferred. Like he's a martial artist, master, commander. Uh, there's a lot there. He has served his king. Well, when the king dies, he says, you've served my uh, this kingdom. I think he says like since the time of my father or something as he dies. There's mm. something implied yeah. there. There's a lot of inferred context for these characters that is voiced very succinctly in these scenes. And like, yes, his family dies. And that's kind of like the catalyst for him to join the the mission of the main characters and the overall conflict. But I mean, there's a lot there, I would say. Right. That, that's inferred or otherwise. So I wouldn't agree with that personally. And that's not from uh, just nostalgia reasons. Because I played six like last almost like way later. Yeah. 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 I, I get that uh, there's the potential Uncle Ben syndrome for a lot of characters in fiction, mm-hmm. you know, where it's like your, your planet Krypton blew up. Somebody shot your parents in an alley. Uncle Ben got right. killed. And that's kind of the catalyst. I, I get that. The point that I want to draw out of that question though. And I think this, I hope it's parsley tongue in cheek joy pad. Uh, <laughs> is, uh, <laughs> the game's really about loss as well. Yeah. So discussing key themes though. And again, I was trying to think of what is Final Fantasy VI about, and I think it's it's maybe impossible to argue that one of the things that it's about is about loss. Uh, its characters endure. And I mentioned this earlier. In character, its characters endure a lot of trauma. Um, they go through uh, a cycle of failure. Uh, the world is almost entirely destroyed, mm-hmm. and moving on through that trauma and overcoming that is I think one of the things that makes Final Fantasy VI compelling, but in a way that a lot of JRPGs, I mean, because obviously it's not the only JRPG that touches on loss. It's not the only JRPG that are like, together, you know, through the power of friendship, you know, we're going to defeat the the final boss. But I think here, it sticks to its guns, and it shows you characters that go through extreme loss. It doesn't just, you know, tell you about it again. Mm -hmm. So... To me, I think that's one of the compelling things about it, uh, and there's more to say on that. But what what would you say about the themes of loss, and would you say there are or what are some of the other key themes in six? I certainly think loss is is one of them. I would say for me, it's more about it's more related to identity in the same way FF Seven is. I had a mm-hmm. great talk with uh, Sean Chiplock, who plays uh, Nero uh, in Final Fantasy Seven Remake, and he also plays uh, what the heck is his name. Uh, in Breath of the Wild, the the bird guy yeah, just escaped. Oh, me. yeah, uh, yeah. R- R- I know who Ravali, you're Ravali. There it is. Uh, great, great guy. And we we had him on the show, and we talked about kind of what are the themes of FF Seven. I think it's related to it's the same as Six. As you said, almost every character in FF Seven goes through this struggle where they are given information. They have an idea of who they are and their identity. They get information that they are in fact not who they thought they were. Right? That goes for Sephiroth. Mm-hmm. That goes for Cloud. And, and then the difference is what defines these characters is how they react to that information and what they do. Like, do they accept it? Do they not accept it? Do they move forward? Uh, do they fight against it? And I think it, I think it's similar in FF6, almost more of like an accepting yourself way, though, as opposed to like uh, fighting it. With Terra, for example, we have her learn about her true identity. Does she accept herself? Uh, is it too much for her to bear? Um we have Kefka, right? Who like, maybe he in similar way to suffer. There's so little there that we can only like fill in the blanks, right? Like mm-hmm. what made him crazy? Did he, was he upset that they experimented on him? He's the first Magitek uh, kind of experiment for those who don't know. Like we can only infer so much, right? There's, there's like one sentence that's mentioned about <laughs> like literally a couple <laughs> words that's mentioned. 
And it's pretty much just what I said. But yeah, I think a lot of it is about that. Uh, and also, if you like, after the world is nearly destroyed, do we give up? Uh, do we accept it and move forward? Or do we just say, I, I can't go on? Like kind of sell us in that in the scene, uh, that famous scene. You know, what what do we do moving forward? So I would say it's a lot uh, tied to identity. And as far as the loss is concerned, certainly. And then kind of like what happens next? Like, how do we deal with our grief? How do we move forward? How do we accept ourselves and like, you know, reality, like what, what, what the world is now? I want to dig a bit deeper into that because I think there's yeah, a connective tissue there that, you know, you, when you talk about identity, what is bound up in identity? There's there's meaning there. You're ascribing meaning to yourself. And with with ascribing identity, you're ascribing purpose as well. Mm-hmm. Um, trying to think about the entirety of the story from start to finish, everything that these characters go through, and then the final act or the, the final boss fight, really. Uh, I'm sure you've heard this before that uh, the the Kefka tower, the Kefka doom tower, mm-hmm. uh, the, the, the statues of the gods um, is compared to Dante's divine comedy. Yes, certainly. Which is three structured. And I I'd heard that before and spent some time kind of looking at it today. And I was like, Oh yeah, totally. I mean, looking at the statue itself at the bottom, you have this very demonic figure that looks as if it's trapped within ice, which come to find out from having a circle. Yeah. Yeah. Having read yeah. Divine Comedy fairly recently, and everybody sort of knows what it is, but mm-hmm. I, it's not exactly just the devil burning in hell, but he's frozen in a, a lake of ice. Mm-hmm. And you totally see that in the in the Kefka fight. And then as it moves up there from the Inferno into Purgatorio, um, you can see the, I believe it was called Lady and Rest, where the, mm-hmm. uh, the enemy is there. And then as you move to the top, instead of Paradiso, you have a perversion of Paradiso. So Dante with Virgil, as he moves through the comedy and reaches the end and you kind of get this sense of like, what is the meaning of life, whether you're religious or not? I mean, it's just a, it's just a literary text. Um, it's an important literary piece. Everybody should. Yeah, read. definitely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I think that it's that journey of coming through uh, you know, all the, the hurtful things in life, the, the, the inferno, the, uh, you know, atonement and guilt and pain and suffering and all of those things that these characters represent through their story. And then their persistence is that purgatorio, right? The persistence somewhere happens between world of, of order. And then suddenly you're in world of ruin and you must live. Uh, and you must keep going on and you must be mm-hmm. dedicated to, but how do you live in such a world that's destroyed? And unfortunately the answer that Kefka gives rather than in Dante love that moves the sun and stars, uh, in Kefka, you have the embodiment of hate. You know, he has that mm-hmm. line of hate, 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 hate. He just mm-hmm. is the, he is hate incarnate. And so instead of Dante reaching God and God saying, this is the meaning of life, the, the characters meet this deified clown in an absurd image. Yeah. And they're told that there is no meaning to life. And the, the battle against Kafka then, and obviously like everybody, there's people who have said this who are far more eloquent and better writers than myself. So there's a lot to read up on this topic, mm-hmm. but 
when the characters face off against Kafka, they're facing off against meaninglessness. They're facing off against the absurd and to find themselves to find their own personal meaning. Like you said, identity is the key word there to find identity against a deified clown that's saying, I'm going to build a monument to non-existence and Mm -hmm. just wipe things out of existence. There really could not be anything that's more antithetical there. And, and I, I feel like that's why the end of six is so striking and that it's so clear cut and that it's so you are, you are fighting against everything. That's the opposite of identity. You're fighting against everything. That's the opposite of meaning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's powerful. I agree completely. That's very, very well, very well said. Yeah, and that that that's where we kind of that's what we kind of said earlier. Like Kefka's strengths are not in like his scenes. You know, he's got some very memorable like one liners, Kefka, but it's more like kind of what he represents. You know, and and it's it's a really cool and that that's the difference between having a character like Necron, a quote unquote character <laughs> like Necron, <Right. laughs> who is just like what is going, and he gives like a one weird speech and you fight him, like quoting Star Wars, yeah. <laughs> and then you fight. Yeah. Him. Like what? And then you have Kefka is like is a more functional kind of uh, ever looming uh, cloud over the entire story, you know, which it can have a lot of meaning drawn from it. Whereas Necron is absolutely like, you know, meaningless uh, chaos. It just comes out of nowhere, which is also akin to like a tornado. Right. Yeah. I think less effective for the story. Yeah. Definitely less effective. I think in the case of Kafka, you're fighting existential doubts about existence. Mm -hmm. And that's, I mean, doubt is something that's a part of the human experience. So there's a lot of humanity, I think, there. Speaking of humanity, though, I think, like, one of the instances in which the game really drills home that sense of determination in the face of overwhelming odds, not just as some kind of, sugary phrase but it makes you go and get those fish for sid yeah that was manually yeah like the fact that it that it that you have to do that yourself and start to think is there any reason for me to do this yeah Mm -hmm. is kind of putting you in those characters shoes and then whether sid lives or dies i mean it's it's it it doesn't hmm, the sadness of his death obviously means something but the fact that you persevered whether you know that the you know if the game's over or not if anybody's still alive or not but the fact that you persevered is i think the point yeah of final fantasy 6 yeah but very well said i agree well dude let's uh oh, music what a oh, what man. a monster oh man is right uh how do you even approach music? Maybe do you have like general thoughts on this soundtrack? Yeah, I mean, it's just it's it's taken to such a level by Nobuo because you got to remember he's used to using the NES and then he's finally given the Super Nintendo like he has more tools uh, than he usually yeah. can. But also it's just like it's so inspired FF6 the soundtrack. I just there's so many songs where you can tell he's really giving his all. And um, one of my biggest criticisms of Final Fantasy IX is actually its soundtrack, which may make people gasp in disbelief. But there's a lot of not so memorable songs in the FF9 soundtrack, mostly because there's so many songs in the FF9 uh, soundtrack. It's a big soundtrack. <laughs> there's so much crunch that, and he's actually come out and talked about this. Why do you think that in FF10 he had a higher uh, had to bring on help? with uh, Junya Nakano and Masa, uh, Masashi Hamauzu. 
you couldn't it's the first soundtrack he couldn't do by himself because he was completely burned from final fantasy 9 because he had to do i think it's like a, upwards of 50 fully orchestrated orchestrated tracks for the nine cutscenes, like the visual works cutscenes, and then i think there's like over a hundred songs just in the game that are him yeah you know, it's huge not, not, it's, it's, it's insane and he had to do all this piggybacking right off of seven eight nine ten like those games came out fast man we talk about how long games take now those games came out in a few years all yeah, of those games <laughs> hundreds upon hundreds of songs which we are super like we love them all from new yeah. but the fact that he produced that much is insane but i guess my point is like he didn't have that much uh he didn't have that much crunch for this i think it's like 63 something like that 63 tracks uh in the 60s for ff6 so i think what it did is it, it allowed him to number one kind of he's right in that beginning phase he's not getting overly worked just to be so creative and so experimental and i think that's the reason why six shines and the same with five like there's so many tracks like you think about even uh uh battle on the big bridge from ff5 oh, yeah. is such a fun like you would never <laughs> expect that from a final fantasy game in any capacity but he just did it because he, he was inspired and there's so much of that in six like one one stand up for me is magitech research facility which i cannot wait to hear on the remaster and it's just such a cool kind of like industrial metallic sound to it and then it has this like kind of brass uh backdrop and strings that come into it and has this powerful feel i mean just that alone there's so much in that track that has inspired like later games uh jrpgs in general and music and gaming and then you know somebody mentioned Terra's theme here it's just so so fantastic and uh i think it's because he treated it like an opera as well like you think about even the instrumentation quote unquote you know from the any super nintendo uh another reason to be excited for the remaster but look at the instrumentation of like cyan's theme uh mm-hmm. versus you know edgar and sabin versus Terra, uh and they all have these very distinct feels whereas Locke. Locke feels like kind of a main theme of Star Wars or something, right? Mm-hmm. It has this very like victorious sounding, heroic sounding feel, Locke's theme, which is so great. But then when you look at uh, Terra's theme, it's kind of like this melancholic, you know, march because it plays when you're marching through the fields of the world, you know, marching towards the end of the story or marching forward in the story. Uh, and you have Cyan's theme, like this really like Japanese, very samurai type character, right? So it sounds very Japanese in nature. And I think the reason it feels like an opera, like I said earlier, is uh, everybody is very big, including Kefka. As we said, everybody's very big. You have to make easily recognizable characters uh, that, ca- that have no performances to be seen and no descriptors. You can't write like, then they walked over here. There's nothing. There's just dialogue. Mm-hmm. So how do you do that? Music. And I mm-hmm. think he uh, he knew that all too well, and I'm sure the director voiced it to him. That's why you just have these super memorable songs but a lot of them are also very memorable because they're so different and so experimental, right? It doesn't just have like uh, a good example I would say is maybe Legend of Dragoon or better yet, since you love tactics, uh, Sakimoto's work in Evilise, mm-hmm. right? He has a very distinct sound. You could hear yeah. you could hear a new Sakimoto song right now and you'd be like, that's him instantaneously. Uh, he doesn't stray far at all with his instrumentation. It's a very clear world sound of that entire universe. Um, whereas in FF6, there's a ton of stuff, like Dancing Mad. There is this crazy, <laughs> insane song, which is one of my favorite songs. Um, and I think that's why those are so memorable. Because with, FF, with FF12 or, or Tactics, it's like a soundscape. 
I think Sakimoto is the best at doing this. It's like a fully, like, you can feel it in your bones. I feel like I'm in Evely's. Every sound is just so familiar, right? Um, and even yeah. like Vagrant Story and other stuff he's done. But then when you look at uh, Nobuo, he's very experimental in his soundtracks, like much more than Sakimoto. Yeah, there's a there's a range there. I, I'm reminded of uh, when I went to go see the Lord of the Rings score. Uh, oh, Howard I did that Shore, too. I think it was. I oh, too. you did. Did Man, you see like? The, yeah, I saw Two Towers. Like, and they played the movie, and they played the entire yeah uh, score over the movie. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, the experience. one I saw in California, I think it was snippets of uh, of the three films. Oh, so cool. Uh, the score, but yeah, it was great, and I recall. Uh, I mean, they might have been like art historians or art critics, but there were right. a, a group of old men sitting in the mm-hmm. in the row in front of me. And when it was over, they got up and one of them looks over and remarks to the other. And he says, it's nice to hear something so melodic. Yeah. And precisely. I was like, that's it, because it's thematic in that literally it dwells upon themes attached to characters. Yep. And when you talk about something like FF6, you know, you've mentioned these characters aren't voice acted. I'm on the fence as to whether like newer games like Octopath Traveler need to have voices um, because I'm used to games like this where the voice is the music yeah, and totally. attaching, you know, like this is what this character is about. You say like a melancholy mm-hmm. march forward. Yeah. That is Terra. You know, you, uh, like uh, just pure heroism. That is that is Locke. Yeah, where you totally. have characters that are a little more mysterious and 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 uh and out there in the wilderness, you yeah. know, living alone. And yeah, like Shadow has this like spaghetti right. Western song. It's exactly. so good. It's so yes. Good. And the achievement here from Uematsu, among many achievements, is nailing all of those different voices yep. in all of those different kinds of genres, creating a soundtrack that has a massive scope to it. Totally. And he revisits those motifs in various instances. So like, I mean, you've heard it said that he, uh, he called dancing mad, one of his favorite tracks to work on. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously listen to it. It's like, yeah, it's, it's astounding. Yeah. And he was just glad that, you know, he had the space to, you know, develop this music and explore. And over the course of various patterns, I'm not a music expert. People have talked about that elsewhere, mm-hmm. but and the era for sure. I mean, like soundtracks had had songs that looped really quickly. 30 seconds, a minute, a minute and a half. How long mm-hmm. is Dancing Mad? Like 12 minutes long? It's very uh, long. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Well, the cool thing about it, it's it's great that you mentioned melody and, and like a lot of the light motifs that he he does through the characters. Cool thing about Dancing Mad is he brings back so much of what you've heard um, from mm-hmm. throughout the game. Like it combines the title screen song that you've heard, like the you know, the organ. It combines uh, the Empire's theme, combines Kefka's theme, is, is woven throughout the entire thing. It's just so well done. It also has this very ascending feel, as we said, through you know Dante's journey. And it's just so, so awesome that they, uh, they kind of tie into, like we said, there's no performance. So what do you remember about these characters? They're songs. And same thing in the credits. As you go through this amazing ending, uh, you get everybody's songs that come back with, uh, with kind of newer versions of them and reprise. And it's, it's awesome. It really is. I, I think it's a masterwork as far as musical text goes. It's, it's astounding. And listening to it this morning, it had actually been a while since I just sat and listened to the, the soundtrack. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was really struck at how somber 
uh, and dour the music is. Obviously, there's the energetic tracks, you know, and I think those stand out as energetic because of the tone of the whole soundtrack kind of being a little more leaning towards the melancholy than you might see from Secret of Mana or, you know, even counterpart Chrono Trigger. Uh, it's, it's a very downbeat soundtrack, but I think that serves obviously the tonality of the game at large. I agree. Uh, another thing I think, uh, a a lot of the reason that people will say like, Oh, I really love the original, not just for nostalgia's sake is that the super Nintendo sound font in general has a very relaxing feel to it. It's very soft. It's not very grating on your ears. Like when you think about, uh, uh, FF6 in particular, there's so many songs that just the strings, and it's such a soft, uh, non-grading thing. Perfect example is this. Have you ever heard the Chrono, because you love Chrono so much, it's a Chrono Trigger soundtrack that's available on iTunes and stuff. It's actually the DS version. And the DS version is slightly different. It's it's just slightest bit different than the NES uh, sound font, and it's, it's a little bit more grating. And I bought it and I was like, yes, I can finally kind of like own this. I lo- I'm a big collector of like digital soundtrack. I think it's so fun. And uh, I was like, oh, I got it. I got Chrono Trigger. Yes. I was listening to it. And I was like, man, it's just that little bit different. It's a little bit more grating, not as soft on your ears. Um, so I guess the the reason I'm excited is when we look at the Pixel Remasters having real performances, real musicians, uh, is that you don't have that. You don't have that kind of jump to slightly better sound fonts. Uh, you have just real master musicians performing and that's why it is uh, i really encourage people to kind of appreciate that fully whether you you know like the pixel remasters or not like that is just such a massive undertaking first of all to do six full games with real music is is tough you know there's there's some there's some uh uh sampling mixed into these soundtracks like there's some that aren't like fully 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 performed but like always the solos are and stuff and it's it's just such a such an amazing task, especially with six, because there's so much different kinds of music. You know, it's not just like, oh, yeah, we've got like the four guys in the band. There's so many different <laughs> sounds in FF6. So yeah, it, it's going to be. Yeah, great. it's not like it's all just operatic music. Yeah, it's not like it's all just ragtime. And the fact that like there's spaghetti Western, there's classical music, there's opera music, there's ragtime in just this one soundtrack is just mind blowing uh, the scope and scale of it all. And I agree. I think that the, uh, the, the pixel remaster soundtracks really looking forward to that. So glad that they got Uematsu involved in it himself to not yeah, have it makes somebody, all the difference. Yeah, exactly. To not have somebody interpret somebody else's work, but to have the original creator reinterpret or just fully realize uh, something that they originally created in the past. So yeah, I, that's, that's what I always say. Yeah. Like it's, it's, he, he's there to say that was a trumpet in my mind. That was yes. a violin that <laughs> and that's so important. Uh, so that's, that's a huge thing. Like even man, have you heard the battle on the big bridge, uh, redone from, FF5? I did. Yes. Oh, it's so, so good. Oh, good. And it sounds exactly like it's the same tempo, the same everything, but it's just, Oh, that's what he was picturing for that. And there's a little Man, bit there of, there's were... a little bit of added parts to it, but it's nothing crazy. It's just so well done. Yeah. No, there were there were bits in so like I'd never played Final Fantasy two or three before the mm-hmm. Pixel Remasters. Oh, God uh, two is an underrated soundtrack, man. So underrated. I, I, what is it? The final dungeon in two? Oh, I was God. just like, I can't Pulling believe how good this is. Yeah. Yeah. 
this is it. fantastic. That, yeah, that's why so it's good. like it's like new old Nobuo songs. You know, like you've kind of heard them, but yes. you haven't. And yes. like yeah, that song you're talking about has like full choir and stuff. It's yeah. great. And dude, the main the main theme of Final Fantasy II, uh, just on the world map, is is one of my favorite songs ever. And oh, they it's great. Knocked it out of the park. It's like a 15 second loop in the original game, actually. <laughs> and they just made oh, it wow. beautiful, majestic, like three minute, you know, piece. And oh, it's so tragic and it's so sad. I mean, that that world is freaking depressing. FF2. It is. And what yeah. a <laughs> what a perfect song for that. But yeah, I if you guys haven't heard it, again, if you're listening, like please go uh, you know. Uh, I think they have it. I, I think they're going to release all the soundtracks officially, like after the six releases, which makes sense. It'd be sick to have like all of them available at once. But yeah, even if you just play the games, you know, go on YouTube, watch a playthrough or something, go on Twitch, watch somebody play. Like, please listen to these songs because they are yeah. incredible. They're just phenomenal. And I know, you know, like having your, you're an appreciation or you're a person who appreciates video game music. Mm-hmm. So I know you've heard orchestral covers, orchestral remixes of a lot of these soundtracks from the 16-bit era. Sometimes I'll listen to those and they're a little muddy. You know, some of the melody might be lost in just the scale Mm -hmm. of the orchestra. And so what I really appreciate with the Pixel Remasters is there's still that focus on melody. There's still that focus on this is what this music is going to sound like. It doesn't just sound like we got a hundred people to play the music, but right. they're focusing on that voice that's in the tracks. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure you agree too. Like having gone to a Lord of the Rings symphony, when you're there, it's a whole different experience. Like when you hear a 120 piece orchestra with a full choir and in Lord of the Rings case, like full children's yeah. choir for no, full normal <laughs> choirs that it's mind blowing power. But you, when you're there, you cannot capture this to this day. You cannot capture an orchestra like recorded fully. And no, when you're there, no. though, like I was sitting next to the bells and I remember the Rivendell theme was playing and I had never even noticed these beautiful bell part of the song because you just think of the main melody. And then whenever I hear that song now, I cannot not hear the, the bells because <laughs> it's so beautiful. So, I mean, we me and Aaliyah recently went to the FF7 remake concert and oh, it was amazing. oh so good. And it gave me even deeper appreciation for a lot of songs like to finally hear uh anxious heart uh fully fully orchestrated was just so beautiful so yeah it's it's different it's hard with when you go big like that to to get it in a recording but i agree the pixel remasters are just they found the perfect balance they really did i think they didn't try to introduce too many layers maybe is the is the key because one of the things with the way that the Super Nintendo sound trip worked is there. There's only so many layers. You can only like three or four channels that you could use. Maybe more than that. There's like drums, bass, yeah. and this stuff. You know. Yep. And then when you have, if you guys notice when you're playing old games, like when you a menu sound happens, like it cuts, cuts out the song. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Like yeah. So yeah. many sound channels. Yeah. 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 And there were creative ways the developers could use this the hardware to get around that. Yeah. You know, the the Super Nintendo is really flexible in certain ways. But it was still just, you know, ancient by modern standards. Uh, and so, again, hearing hearing the music fully realized like that is just a really interesting thing and realizing, again, how authentic it is. But mm-hmm. here as we come towards the end of all things, mm-hmm. uh, audience questions, some final ones. And by the way, folks, if you want 
to ask a question or share a comment to get a mention on this show like these kind folks, then keep an eye out on my Twitter at The Well-Read Mage, where I announce the topics for each Magecast episode in advance. Next episode, going to be talking with Sector 6 about Command and Conquer. So that should be fun. A, a different kind of game than a lot of the ones that we've been talking about. But some final questions here, and we can move through these fairly briskly, I think. Esper Dreams asks, do you feel that the second half of the game is really one giant side quest compared to the first half? Uh, yes and no. I'd say the reason that uh, the fact that it is you can do it in any order is going to invariably feel a little bit less focused. This is why uh, it's kind of a classic example of why linearity mm-hmm. is good in storytelling, right? You can't just have like uh, completely optional stuff. Also, you don't mm-hmm. have to do all of it. That's the main issue with the second half, right? So like you can, as far as I know, go whenever you want to the end up to a certain point like right once you get the airship and stuff. but like you know it feels a little bit less powerful because look at the opening sequence and this is why i always uh this is why i always come for ff14 with a very vicious uh <laughs> critique is because the opening of a story is the most important part of a story that is that's just an absolute fact there's no there's no debating that so if you don't grip and hook the audience like there's there's no reason to keep even enjoying the story give it a chance so FF6 has a fantastic opening, instantly engaging, um, instantly powerful, just like every Final Fantasy does. Like all the originals are so good. Even freaking <laughs> FF1. It's like this super interesting thing. It's like, oh, Garland's freaking kidnapped the princess who's our best knight. It's like, what? That's cool. Let's go rescue her. Like, it's interesting. Um, and it's interesting because I, I made this uh, observation a while ago. I never really thought about it. But almost every Final Fantasy opens with like escaping a city. Huh. And like some some epic conflict causes you have to flee a city or get out or start in a city like Midgar, like Xanarkin, like Narsh. Mm. And the list goes on, like go through all the games. That is interesting. interesting. But um, yeah, yeah, I love that. So think about that. And, you know, it's a whole other topic for another show or wow. whatever. But um, guess what games don't have that? You know, certain ones like uh, FF13 yeah. <laughs> kind, kind of does. Kind of does. I mean, that's like argue, 90 percent of the game. Also um, running. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I guess kind of, but yeah, FF14 certainly does not. I don't think it even has an passive. opening. It's just like long, passive. yeah, very passive. Yeah. So um, it's super important for a narrative yeah. to come out strong and instantly establish its characters, introduce a conflict and uh, world building and go Man, But uh, six doesn't are great. like separated at birth or something. I don't know, like hearing you say this, I'm like, <laughs> he's allowed to say this. Okay, <laughs> folks. All right. I, I, I've echoed some of these sentiments before. Yeah caught flack for it. I get it. There's something about my tonality that, that rubs people the wrong way, but you come off as a very earnest person, sir. And saying that, saying that (laughs) about 14 is accurate. I get that people love 14. I get that people say, Oh yeah. And let me just say, no, no, like, please. I I love, I love 14 for what it is. It's not my favorite. I'm really gonna, I'm forcing myself to get through Realm Reborn just because I want to quote unquote beat FF 14. And I've got like, big creators in the space who love 14 helped me out with that but like uh yeah i have a lot of critiques of it the cinematics aren't there the 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 visuals are very poor i feel it's like early ps3 you know so it's hard to get into it nowadays but it's it's great and i know the later stuff is fantastic i know everybody's furiously raging right now i know the later stuff's good in the story but my point is the opening is always the most important right 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 no matter how good the ending is. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, and there's nothing about what you just said that criticizes this commercial art product that people need to take per- yeah. personally, 
right? Because you're not you're oh, not yeah, criticizing a person. That's one of the the issues that I've run in with talking with people is there's definitely an element where like if this is my favorite game and you slam it or you say something negative, you're attacking me, attacking me. (laughs) It is something that we as creators and that we as a community need to be aware of that. Like when I'm criticizing a game, I'm not criticizing you, my friend as a person. And so with that said, I mean, yeah, I echo, I echo some of those sentiments. I tried a second time getting through 14 trusting and still trusting that the people who say they've played the whole thing say there's good stuff coming. But ARR is not part of that. It's a very, very yeah. slow. And opening. most most people agree with that, by the way. Even people who love it are like, yeah, you got to kind of just get through Realm Reborn. Yeah. Then it, then it no, there's up. a lot of very like, honest fans, for sure. Yeah, yeah. And like, and people, to be fair, aren't really saying it has the best opening ever. It's no. just kind of, an, they're saying, like, yeah, it's more of a passive thing to kind of world build. But that's just the point I'm making about overall storytelling. Yeah. Also, again, just kind of overall culture stuff like you just mentioned. Like, we're not coming for anybody with this. Uh, like, I was recently on Night Sky Prince's uh, thing. Me and him have had classic, you know, uh, conversations about FF7 remake and why we disagree. But, like, the main thing is we're talking about something we're very passionate about. Mm-hmm. And we're going to get excited. We're going to share our opinions. But, like, it's just opinions. Right. You know? Like, yes, like, cool. I've, I've studied film. I've made some stuff. But it's still just an opinion. It's a, Maybe it's an educated opinion, sure. But it doesn't matter. Have your own opinion. <laughs> Yeah. Right. It doesn't like, have to change yeah. somebody else else's opinion unless they feel like it helped them work through something rationally. And that's happened to me yeah. before sharing video game opinions. But end of the day, it's video game opinions, people. So that's it. it. That's yeah, it. No your your own experience things. is all that matters, guys. Don't let anybody, yeah. you know, lessen your, your experience. Yeah. Perfect. Mr. Raker asks Ragnarok, sword or Esper? Sword. Sword? Oh. Esper. martial artist oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> I, have to. I just felt I have like to an entity is like cooler than a sword but it's I definitely cool yeah definitely. i don't i but they're both cool i mean it was a freaking sword called ragnarok that's super cool yeah. slide bob asked what's your opinion about the ff6 game boy advance version have you played that version i've not i've not uh okay. so i can't really speak too much on it i heard there's a slightly different uh translation but uh oh, yeah. I don't think it's that different. There's some added dungeons, but I will say the whole people who are like raging that they took out the added content, that content is trash. Like it's, it's really (laughs) bad. It's literally offers no value. Like it's bottom of the barrel, like very poorly designed dungeon. It's just extra stuff just because it's there. doesn't mean it's good. You know, like, yeah, uh, it's the same thing with FF1 and all the other stuff. It's very like poorly put together, not by the original teams for the most part. Like, and that's very, apparent so just keep that in mind don't don't view that as a as any negative negativity on the pixel remasters that's my personal opinion anyway yeah i mean i haven't played the gba versions either i can't speak to that either uh but i think that when there's a port um i look for authenticity as well so mm-hmm. tack on things like that uh they, they might be interesting they might be useful they might be insightful or they might just feel like you know quick tack ons srick yeah. 360 asks ff6 has a few secret optional characters like umaro gogo mog shadow this seems to be a trend that's died down with most contemporary rpgs how do you feel about secret miscible party members in role-playing games and i'll add to that is that something you'd like to see come back to rpgs uh for the most part no i'll say because it's kind of like people were saying about ff7 remake is like oh is yuffie and vincent gonna still be optional no 
It's like, why? Like they're putting millions upon millions of dollars in <laughs> these cutscenes. You think they're going to make like three different versions of every single cutscene? No, that's that's ridiculous to ask and and insane. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking of games like kind of like Suikoden. If that series ever came back, like cool, that's that's different. It's kind of my only asterisk there. But uh, no, I, I don't think it has too much of a meaning for, for that era of games. It's awesome for PS1 because you can do that. And it's like, oh, cool side quest. But we, we have much more meaningful side content nowadays that that is better suited to that same feeling like discovering stuff yeah so it would have to be new games in that format yeah again like if you're you know like if they were making a a new rpg that was like say like octopath traveler hearkening back to this previous era um but i agree it doesn't make sense to hire an actress and do body capture (laughs) and stuff for yuffie when players might not even encounter that content at all so yeah. if you're blowing it up to the scale of FF7 Remake, yeah, it's, it's not going to be missable. Yeah, I mean, ev- every scene is so like cinematic. There's no way. Yeah, yeah, no way. Uh, Summerfelt R, what's your favorite trick in this game? Some creative exploit- exploitation of the game's mechanics, like the Phoenix down on undead bosses. Uh, there's a lot of breakables in this. Do you have a favorite? Or do you kind of just play through the game normally? Uh, we It's kind of tough because when we did our race, I mentioned earlier, we called it the mad dance. Uh, we did our mm-hmm. race uh, kind of of the death to the death. We we kind of outlawed all those exploits from speed runs and stuff. So yeah. I, I'm not so for exploits in any games, personally. Like I mm-hmm. like it's fun on a second playthrough for sure to be like, ah, Phoenix down. Uh, it's always fun in Final Fantasy. And they always usually slip in like one undead boss for that, right? But uh, yeah. yeah, I'm not so much into the speedrunning scene. I think in another life, I would have loved being like a, a speedrunner in general, like maybe Final Fantasy or Mario 64. But um, I've not learned too much about speedrun side of things and like extreme exploits and glitches and stuff for FF6 specifically. Uh, my friend BGG, background guy 02, you may have heard of him. He does the biggest Final Fantasy event on Twitch every year called the uh, Final Fantasy Fiesta. And he is like master of all that stuff. I, I love watching him do it, but my brain is, is much more into like the story and stuff. So I, I tend to like watch it and go, that's crazy. And then forget about it pretty quick. Yeah. I'm i uh, I'm more on the, the, the criticism end of the, the presentation and not so much the mechanics. Uh, I know a lot mm. of people who I would consider systems people right. who love, love like, Oh, if you yeah. put this Esper at this stage and it'll just like, you'll be ungodly by the time you, you face Kefka and just blow through him. And like, that's cool. And for just different minds that work in different ways, I guess. Yeah, I agree. Uh, gingerbread i'd like to know why shadow decided to just die at the end i actually didn't remember this at all uh it, i guess it's been a while since i played it shadow just decided to die at he the does end. yep i uh I, <laughs> yeah i realized I that when i played it last year I, I don't know what the question <laughs> is but i i don't know why he did but he did yes that's a thing yeah. I, I think it's all right they're probably trying to kind of bring in some variety and stuff and you know there's the option to save him earlier so maybe they were like yeah, yeah. let's kind of extend his story but still have that uh that fate for him i don't know but i mean he's had a hard life for sure yeah i mean let the boy yeah, rest yeah. and final question uh from when Tyrion, do you think the way ff6 tells its epic ensemble story provides models or examples for how games can utilize conventions from other forms of media to tell stories so i feel like that really crystallizes whole, yeah. uh, a lot of our discussion 
that we've had. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we talked about it earlier, right? Like opera. Uh, FF6 is such an opera and feel from the music to the to the presentation. Also stage play. Like I said, the visual is a stage play. You're, you're watching uh, from up on the, the mezzanine, you know, looking down at the opera, the entire story. And the set pieces being these 2D kind of drop downs. Like you said, there's no back to that building. Feels like an opera. It feels like a stage, right? It's like kind of these creative sets mm-hmm. that get dropped down in front of you. So I think it's great. Uh, it also feels like a novel. And it is also, as we said, like kind of the first example or one of the first examples of massive, massive amount of dialogue and text in, in a video game. I feel like games often get compared to cinema, yeah. you know, and we say, oh, this is a very cinematic cutscene. Mm-hmm. We used to just call them cinematics before we call them cutscenes yeah. uh, or FMVs. But uh, it's interesting then to think about a game in terms of other art forms, you know, like you said, stage play and theater. Mm-hmm. And, and novels and writing. So FF6, uh, really a remarkable game. I'm so looking forward to playing the Pixel Remaster. I don't know that I have room in my schedule to start it this next week, but <laughs> I will get to it. Uh, and Phil, I know you will as well. Uh, but man, thanks yeah. very much for sharing your insights. Thanks for being on the show. No problem. Thanks for your time. It's, it's been a great you. talk. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. And where can our listeners find you? You can find me pretty much on everything. Uh, it's the same man everywhere, Philip Hartshorn. Uh, I stream FF on Twitch if you're really into FF and I'm going to be doing Pixel Remaster. Uh, me and my girl do Final Fantasy covers and duets uh, on Twitter a lot, on Instagram, all over the place. I got two YouTube channels, got my filmmaking one and then my gaming one. And uh, yeah, I'm just, I'm all over the place. Come say hi sometime. I love chatting about stuff like this. So please like drop by the Twitch, you know, get in chat and let's have a crazy Final Fantasy conversation. <laughs> yes. Yes, thanks again, man. It was it was a great time. Uh, we'll have to chat with you again sometime down the road. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for listening. One of the great joys of doing this podcast is revisiting games that I've loved and enjoyed for so many years and thinking about them in a new light. I think that's the best one can hope for in studying games like these. If you've thought about Final Fantasy VI in a new way today, then I encourage you to please leave a review or a rating for MageCast Podcast on Spotify, Podchaser, or Apple Podcasts. Thanks again, and don't forget you can support the show by visiting patreon.com forward slash thepixels. This episode may be over, but the legend will live on. Passed down by the dwarves, the elves, and the dragons. <laughs>